Okay. Good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to the June 24th, 2023 edition of the Saturday Free School. Um, as always, I'm joined by all the rest of the members of the Free School. And yeah, we have a lot to talk about today. Um, as many people know, we recently had our intercivilizational festival here in Philly, um, celebrating the lives of uh, Paul Robeson and the most honorable Elijah Muhammad. But that event also was shortly preceded by our event in Chicago, which was preceded by many other events, basically going back to our 10th anniversary in the fall of last year. And so, um, yeah, we're just going to take the first half of free school to reflect and assess the the festival, how it went, um, hear from people who were organizing or who spoke in different parts of the, the program. Um, and I guess also reflect a little bit on, you know, the past uh, half year, I think, um, going back to the 10th anniversary, because this is kind of, I think to me, it feels kind of like a culmination of um, where the free school has been moving for the past several months. Um, so we're going to start with that. And then we're going to go to continuing our discussion on the 2024 election, um, discussing, you know, our Robert F. Kennedy Jr., um, Cornell West, Donald Trump, and especially in light of certain interviews, including one by Chris Hedges, who is, it seems, involved in Cornell West's campaign. Um, but yeah, without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to uh, other members of the Free School who were um, involved in the organizing uh, committee and who spoke uh, at different points in the event. Um, and so... I'll pass it over to Alice. Yeah. Um, I think all of us are recovering from the event as usual with our events. We've put a lot of work into it. And so following oftentimes, all of us require a deep uh, nap in a couple of days. Um, but I wanted to start our discussion with the festival in terms of just talking about how um, with each event of the free school, we're trying to do uh, more and more. And we can get into it specifically as well um, with other members of the free school, but this includes the emceeing and framing of the event of why we need to celebrate individuals such as Paul Robeson and Elijah Muhammad. Um, the performances, whether it's dance, singing, um, jazz, and also the art exhibits. Uh, but carried throughout all these components are also the relationships that we've built, um, the free school and others, such as the Church of the Overcomer, the Nation of Islam, um, and et cetera, uh, over the past couple of months and years. Um, and particularly as I've been reflecting, I think what I keep going back to is also the times how you know these times that we're living in, and in a bit we'll be discussing the presidential election that's reflective of larger changes in American society and the world, um, how that uh, with free school and our events and our weekly discussions um, try to reflect that. And also um, with the moment and with these exciting times to also put forward a grand vision for these times. Um, and that's really, embodied by what we had tried to do this past weekend, um, which is to celebrate their lives, but also what the ideas of these two individuals were, specifically that of an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of the world and in the United States. 
and also the human values that have to accompany them because both Paul Robeson and Elijah Muhammad, they represented individuals who had come out of the period of reconstruction of slavery and of people who were striving towards freedom. And so in a, inevitably the question of what does freedom mean? What a people should be came up in our discussions, our performances um, and in our conversations with others. Um, and I think what the event has also shown me is how much is yet to come, both in terms of you know what we're talking about the world stage in the United States, but also our task in the free school. All these relationships that we're building, all of these art exhibits, these performances, there's so much more to build because we are trying to set a vision for the future, um, a vision also a path for human action. Um, and that's something that I think we'll also be getting into with um, as we discuss RFK Jr. because in his most recent um, speech in New Hampshire, he had mentioned a movement. And I think that's what also in the free school we're, we're trying to do, which is to be going back to this concept of a teacher of teachers. What are the ideas that are needed to, um, to motivate people, to um, have people work towards and build towards? Um, so I'm... I'm tired and recovering, but also very excited for, you know, everyone's, um, I know, uh, how everyone has come to process the event and how uh, we all see free school moving forward together. Yeah. Yeah, I, the grand vision that you're talking about, Alice, um, I definitely agree with that. Um, and as a side note, like, I just want to say thanks to everybody who put in all the time that they did. Like, this is just me talking to us at this moment. So, like, we would not have been able to do this um, festival in this city without everybody's participation. And um, a, uh, like creative application of personal willpower um, of their own personalities. That's what everybody was able to contribute to in their own way. Because in reflecting about the event like it was a very um you know personal event the people who connected or came um were people that we reached out to um so it's always a special thanks to the mosques who showed up mm -hmm. mosque 12 25 um brother abdul Haq, um uh minister rodney um there's always a special thanks to the performers that came um whom chanda had reached out to the cambodians mm -hmm. Purva to the bangladeshis and um Ramya always coming with yes, her yes. um own original um creative work of art that she had taught her students <laughs> to perform. Um, and that, and that even her performance in of itself is a uh, kind of like a smaller um, viewing lens of the 
synthesis, this Afroasiatic reconstitution, the synthesis um, of the now and of the past of like the, because of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and because of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and Paul Robeson <clears throat> and um, India. Um, because she had done like this performance around the idea of Maya Angelou's poem of a caged bird. I know why the caged bird I, sings. I know why the caged bird sings. Mm -hmm. And it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. It really was just um, beautiful. And um, I feel like we have um, not only like a, it's like a tighter bond with um, people because in the same way that when we had gone to Chicago and we talked about how like, well, yes, like we'll deliver like to the DeSable Museum, Paul Robeson, who he like actually is. Um, in the same way we keep delivering to the people of Philadelphia and everybody who participates, like let's create a like a cultural um, standard um, that is based in the reality of people's lives and like real history. Like who is Paul Robeson? What does he stand for? Who is the most honorable Elijah Muhammad and why was he so important? And like through that, we like, like so much beauty uh, like really came out. Um, and it will be a lasting, it will be a lasting um, effect, especially moving forward with what we want to do with the um, with our future plans of the year, Baldwin and stuff like that, because it's with like the legacy of the city of like the civil rights movement that we do anything and are able to find connections that we were not that we didn't see before like even the first unitarian church like it just so happened that martin luther king heard mordecai johnson speak for the first time and like everything gained significance mm -hmm. because we are able to put uh, mm -hmm. or rightly align mm -hmm. um i guess and make sense of like people in their context like I don't think like Bobby Zenko or Alfie Pollitt or whatever would be able to play the same if we hadn't said the names of Martin Luther King and knew what they were about. Um, but it was unconquerable love, the magnificent lives of Paul Robeson and the most honorable Elijah Muhammad, a festival for the people. Um, everything was deliberate and what we did mm -hmm. and you know with that it came like with a lot of like um as much as as much as science that we put into it it allows for a lot of like creative and like you know <clears throat> things that we didn't expect whether that be like the photo that we now have of the cambodian and the korean dancers oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like um there was just a lot of opportunities that we had, like with Eddie speaking um, to pretty much to um, the mosques about this relationship that the Mexican American fits in 
with the Afro-Asiatic struggle. And there was just, we are making space and struggling for this, we're struggling for ideological clarity, but mm -hmm. in that we're making mm -hmm. space for human potential mm -hmm. to develop mm -hmm. for the future. Um, and there's a lot of like ideas that we like have been able to think about. And the three things that came into my mind is this Afro-Asiatic reconstitution and how it aligns with the fourth American revolution. Um, the phrasing men of the future, like Paul Robeson, like men of the future, like preparing and, and then how that connects with the most honorable Elijah Muhammad, preparing a people for the future and how that in that way, like we in the free school are people who are preparing for the future, like a future that is of a peace economy, like mm -hmm. is of a true democracy mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. you know, these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And then um uh yeah, I think those are the only two ideas I was thinking about because it's true what you said, Jeremiah, like what we did in the festival is a continuation of everything that we did this year and will continue to do. And like everything that we did this year, I thought was really like awesome. And it makes me very <laughs> excited to keep on moving because I feel like we have this, um, we, we, we're sitting on the fertile ground and we have so much more to do, so much more to get better upon, to clarify. And like with what you're saying, Jeremiah, like because we went to Chicago, we had put on like this exhibit um, for, or we were preparing for this exhibit that we we're gonna do in the um, Festival for Art and the People. And in doing so, we were discussing like the black proletariat, Afro-Asiatic constitution, like all these thoughts about um, how we can frame the exhibit. But then after Chicago and watching the documentary um, that we had made, we were like, no, let's just center it upon Paul Robeson and the most honorable Elijah Muhammad, through which the ideas that we speak of will be born and have also this Mm -hmm. creative potential to grow mm -hmm. into saying that, well, for today arises the uh, point where we prepare a people for this Afro-Asiatic reconstitution or something like that. So there's just a lot of this fast turnaround that we've been able to do. But mm -hmm. at the same time, like we're staying, like we're obviously directed in one particular point like it all leads to the this development um that we're sitting on which is how the world is actually turning towards um a new epoch away from the what like the this kind of like old world that is also dying um so i thought that the festival for our people was profound and i can't get over how it happened and like everybody who connected to it like actually because of the festival i took like a deep dive into like all the people like i started stalking a lot of people in the nation of islam because they keep sharing so much information about how you know all this all these uh 
you know, guide guidelines and things like that, how to live and all whatever mm -hmm. like that. And I was talking to Doc about it and he was like, so are you joining the nation? And I was like, well, I'm in the free school. <laughs> but the only reason why I say it like that is because, well, the free school for philosophy and black liberation is a group <laughs> that can contribute as much as the nation can. And is alongside and in, in sisterhood and brotherhood with the nation. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm to find people who have that or to make these kinds of relationships and you know these real people striving to do good like become evolved human beings and like right. men of men and women of god mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. being alongside that is really deep to me because it might feel like this time like oh there's nothing in the world to do so let's just like you know, go the bomb shelter and go into it. Or like, <laughs> yeah. you know, the world is ending, so fuck it. Like, there's, there's a lot of, even like at work, like there's this one person who is a DJ and trans, you know, person, nice guy, like 30. He, and he was like, well, if the end of the world comes right now, like, I'll be good with it because I'll just party into it. And I'm just like, that's wild to me because mm -hmm. there's just so much that this world can still offer. And like my whole worldview is much different than that. Um, like I see an entire world that can be coming and there's a bunch of children that will be born that <laughs> actually doesn't deserve a world that should end and be finished, but a world that has every room to grow. Um, and I think that the free school is also making that possible. Mm -hmm. um, but. I wanted to uh, expound on this concept of the futuristic vision of uh, Paul Robeson and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Uh, I remember when we were reading Robeson, we talked about how the world was shifting uh, in this direction. And uh, we said, wow, you know, the, the people of America need to know each other. The world needs to know, know each other. And in America, you find the people of the world. And so, so you can achieve something here that is not so straightforward to achieve somewhere else. I, I don't know how many Cambodian people are in uh, Korea and vice versa, but uh, uh, some uh, due to uh, uh, this this circumstance, you have these two beautiful people that I think saw something in each other and like, oh man, that was beautiful, man. Let's take a picture together. I don't know if they how. how they articulated it, but they're just, they just felt something that they're like, yo, we, 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 we're, we belong together, man. Let's, let's, let's remember this occasion and let's take this feeling with us. Uh, and, uh, that was just the people that I guess decided to take the picture who felt uh, confident like that. Maybe the moms were in a good mood. I know the, little, the kids were, <laughs> kids aren't like that. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm positive that other performers seeing each other perform took some of that feeling with them as well. And they had to shuffle in and out and they had prior engagements and whatnot and stuff before. But I'm positive that they had to have uh, felt this oneness amongst each other. And uh, I know I felt it in the crowd. I wasn't performing, so I felt it and I couldn't have been the only one. Um, and so I, I, th I think that uh, uh, in in building this concept of the future, and we, ha we have some sound articulation as to what that really means uh, but but uh, you gotta feel it. You gotta. You, that's another way of knowing it with your head and with your heart. 
And uh, I feel uh, amazed that we're able to do both uh, very well uh, throughout the whole uh, experience. Uh, and I was grateful for the opportunity to articulate some of this futuristic vision as well with uh, my experience getting to know uh, the Nation of Islam in Chicago, especially uh, student minister Abu Muhammad. Uh, when, I, when I think about this uh, futuristic vision, uh, you know, especially around this concept of knowledge of self, knowledge of self, that is not a, uh, uh, it's, it's not just something that's cool to know, but they elevate that knowledge of self into practice, uh, into remaking yourself and others in the world around you. Uh, and so having uh, that knowledge of self and that that's, uh, world adding and adding to that the world synthesis uh, we're making out, we, we, we really can uh, remake ourselves and, re, uh, and, and make a new American people that take into account and does not diminish where you uh, have some ancestral history. Uh, and uh, really this, this gift of the Black Freedom Movement is something that has been uh, gifted to you. That's your inheritance too. Uh, you have the wealthiest parents in the world if you think about it. Uh, in this regard uh, of this uh, rich capacity for struggle that that you can make a part of yourself and this uh, vision of the future that you can that you can see yourself and that's that's what I wanted to articulate to to uh, all people and especially uh, taking into account uh, uh, my heritage with with Mexico. Uh, you know, when 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 you're not from the United States, uh, the the path that you uh, have been charted for is the best that you could hope for is to align yourself with the white forces to to elevate yourself in society uh, with your status and position and wealth. Uh, and okay, you know, you probably don't want to, no one wants to be at the bottom of society. You should hope to get educated and make a little bit more money than than uh, maybe when you first got here. But for what ends and, and how are you going to relate to the rest of society other than than just doing for yourself? What, uh, and uh, with, with with people like the, knowing really uh, uh, a man like Minister Abel Muhammad, uh, you have a, a, a shining example of what that means uh, to become a part of the society, but in in the fullest way possible. Uh, and uh, it's really more more enriching than than money can buy and career can buy. Uh, and. Uh, is 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 really what what the what uh you know the, the immigrant and anyone else that comes here you know they, you do you say I do this for my kids I want I want my kids to have a better future I, this this is the better future man I promise you I promise you that yeah hey what you said actually reminded me of something that Nathan and I were talking about last night which is how I think a lot of us in free school but for Nathan and me also like our parents are immigrants and so they carried a certain attitude into their experience in America that kind of avoids the question of the American identity. Um, you know, there's there's that there's the immigrant script, which is, um, you know, don't involve yourself too heavily into the political or the social landscape of America and just try to make a good life for yourself as an individual and then also your family unit. And that'll be a noble cause for your life. And Nathan and I were talking about how 
we felt we could not follow that same script for whatever reason, and that we were searching for something more in our lives. And for, and in some ways, it's because our parents have already fulfilled that script to such a full extent that, you know, why would I repeat the same thing? But at the same time, we were also talking about how a lot of our peers are, are satisfied to actually follow that same immigrant script, even if they are second generation immigrants. But I think I bring this up because I think that our event was a very, like a very concrete value in showing what an alternative path looks like in the reconciliation of the new American identity, but also the advancement of American civilization or American history. Mm -hmm. And And I also say this because one of my close childhood friends who grew up very similarly to me from California had come for the event. And this was what I think a lot of her impression of the event was, was, um, well, well, because she's not usually in Philadelphia day in and day out the way that we are. But I think what was outstanding to her about the event was that it cracked something in her where she was like, you know, this might not be the way that one would articulate it, but she just knew that she didn't have to follow that script anymore of basically becoming white, like becoming white in a way that abstains you from the moral question of what it means to be an American and then where the American identity, like what the American identity must still fulfill. I think it broke this idea that she had to be separate from all of that. And it folded, you know, in some ways it folded her into this like new American future because I think that this event that we had, I couldn't stop thinking of the 10th anniversary that we had in September and October last year. And I think that like Jeremiah and other people mentioned, it is a development or a continuation of our past events and our past formulations. And I, and I think that some of these formulations that we're beginning to see concretize in a new way like the emergence of a new american people of course like this idea that the future is ours to win that there stands a future but also it can be won it can be developed um i i felt that the event was a testament to a lot of that and i think it was also the 10th anniversary that helped me situate and absorb this event more deeply in some ways um I also wanted to add that at the start of our discussion, I started thinking about Curtis Mayfield's song, New World Order, or maybe it's his album, New World Order, a lot, because I think that he actually released it in the 1970s or 80s, which is kind of interesting because it comes a little bit after the civil rights movement or after the fever or the, the climax of the civil rights movement. And it's, I don't know, the moment it comes out of is special where you know things are a little bit quieter there are new beginnings in America, but also, you know, certain revolutionary moments have ended, but he's saying like a new world order will come, there will be a brand new day. And then on that note, I started thinking about this 1962 essay by James Baldwin called The Creative Process that is not very long, but I think is extremely important and always has to say a lot for any moment in American history. But he talks about um, he talks about the search, basically the moral responsibility of the artist, but um, how much that is in dialectic or in relationship to the larger search of a nation for its identity, like how a nation makes sense of its past in order to move toward its future. And I wanted to read 
if it's all right with you all, the end of the essay, this paragraph, because I think it explains a lot of why I think our event was significant and why I felt that it really deepened my belief in this American future and the American people. Okay, I'm just gonna read it because a few people nodded. But he writes, um, so this is James Baldwin, 1962. He says, the dangers of being an American artist are not greater than those of being an artist anywhere else in the world, but they are very particular. These dangers are produced by our history. They rest on the fact that in order to conquer this continent, the particular aloneness of which I speak, the aloneness in which one discovers that life is tragic and therefore unutterably beautiful could not be permitted. And that this prohibition is typical of all emergent nations will be proved. I have no doubt in many ways during the next 50 years. This continent now is conquered, but our habits and our fears remain. And in the same way that to become a social human being, one modifies and suppresses, and ultimately without great courage, lies to oneself about all one's interior, unchartered chaos, so have we as a nation modified or suppressed and lied about all the darker forces in our history. We know in the case of the person that whoever cannot tell himself the truth about his past is trapped in it, is immobilized in the prison of his undiscovered self. This is also true of nations. We know how a person in such a paralysis is unable to assess either his weaknesses or his strengths and how frequently indeed he mistakes the one for the other. And this I think we do. We are the strongest nation in the Western world, but this is not for the reasons that we think. It is because we have an opportunity that no other nation has in moving beyond the old world concepts of race and class and caste to create finally what we must have had in mind when we first began speaking of the new world. But the price of this is a long look backward when we came in an unflinching assessment of the record. For an artist, the record of that journey is most clearly revealed in the personalities of the people the journey produced. Societies never know it, but the war of an artist with his society is a lover's war, and he does at his best what lovers do, which is to reveal the beloved to himself, and with that revelation to make freedom real. I think there's so much about that paragraph, which is the last paragraph of the essay that, like I could just go back and forth about the event, like why I see a relationship between the two, but I I think like that last line, you know, to make freedom real. I felt that I was seeing that in a very new way with, with my eyes with this event for the first time, where as people have talked about, um, you know, we saw the Korean and Cambodian dancers coming together and, encountering a certain ancient commonality between the two of them, but then also a very, very modern commonality, yes. which is that we're all American. We're all in America and we're all in Philadelphia right now in this church. And then also, of course, the musicians, which I had seen both the Alfie Politru and the Bobby Zankel and the Wonderful Sound perform before, but never like that. And when I had spoken with Bobby after the event, he was very explicit in saying that so much of it was because of the audience, the way the audience was responding to the music, which drove the musicians to respond a certain way to each other and back to the audience. And so it just kept building and building and building for that 45 minutes that they were playing. Um, but I think that, 
how Baldwin describes that we are the strongest nation in the Western world, but not for the reasons we think, and that we have a chance to move from the old world into the new world, but that the old world has to be understood, um, reckoned with, healed, and then synthesized with this moment. I think that for me is almost a perfect framework to understand what we were doing under. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> sorry, I'm getting over a cold when, uh, when Alice said that some of us needed a big nap. What I needed was to <laughs> recover for a few days because all these all the fatigue of putting the event together um, caught up to me. But I hope everyone can hear me okay. But I think it was really nice that you read that, Michelle, because I've been actually thinking about the notion that I feel like we really do believe, and we get this from Paul Robeson, we get this from James Baldwin, we get this even from the, the most honorable Elijah Muhammad, that like culture is something that one is very important to the struggle for you know, the right ideas, but also for a future, for a vision, and, and for, the, for, for, the, for the children, for humanity. And I do think that in some ways what we're asking for and when Serafina, you said sort of a new cultural standard that I feel like our event was able to articulate, but also even assert in this time in the city is all really important because I'm realizing um, from some of the conversations I'm also part of outside of the free school that there's a lot of people out there that don't really believe or their notion of what can even possibly advance culture is very limited. Like, I don't really think we hear and like anywhere else, unless you even look to the examples of history that we look, uh, we study, you know, read about Paul Robeson and his notions of what this human universal is, or um, all of the types of concerts he did, um, all the types of songs and languages he learned as if he wanted to very much sing and speak in the same tradition as, his, as those people, as he saw them as part of himself, but also beginning with the sorrow songs. I just think it's a really powerful thing because I'm trying to understand why it was a little bit challenging for me to share this event or describe it in ways that I feel like capture the full profundity of the event, because I do think that to perhaps the untrained eye, it could seem like there's a lot of events that go out here, go out there and try to bring together a smattering of multicultural performers. But in that sense, like to try to fit what we did into the, um, uh, the identity politics, the sort of woke culture. It's again about segmentation. It's about like, it's not really about the sense of the collective unity or even remaking of, of the American people. And I think that that was even something that was just so foreign to some of the ears that I was, um, you know, just trying to communicate with. And I found that to be really interesting. I started thinking like, is it that um, where the West... Western civilization's notion of what is the way to advance culture, it has certainly advanced a lot of its culture, but I feel like today it's a sense that like there's a lot of individual experimentation that like you that that can only, you know, it can be only very obscure and anti-human and all of that. But I think what we asserted was so different because I do think that our lineup of folk singers even very civilizational traditions, as Michelle pointed out, but also that sense of the newness and that you could say that the jazz performers that we invited are very, um, they're also 
these guardians of a certain tradition, but they are always reinventing it. And like, there's so much like as a, as this huge event kind of was almost a jazz ensemble, like wow, playing off of cool. each other. Like our whole process of putting this together was at certain points very much lawn chance, but I cannot deny that there was so much improvisation almost that happened <laughs> because we like oh went to God. Chicago and were affected by, um, and so the, the, the exhibit change and parts of the, you know, sort of way we were just thinking things just got deeper, you know, nothing really, I think, dramatically became something different as so much as I feel like sharpened. So I just wanted to say that I just feel like um, I'm very much excited about how our event asserted the notion that like, yes, an avant-garde exists, but the avant-garde is also rooted in the people um, and a sense of a future and a sense that like in this way, like culture can and should be advanced in ways that I feel like um, there's, there is a lot of stagnancy that I feel like the discourse around art, this discourse around ideas, this discourse around um, the future is really stagnated because of the universities, of the um, way I feel like the ruling class is trying to, I think, suppress the sense of a sky or a sense that like, they're very much like examples of all of this, this whole process that I feel like we really came to understand like when we were, when I know Seraphine and I, we had a lot of conversations, but so did the entire exhibition team, you know, about like what it is that we were trying to put together a certain progression of arc of, um, that we wanted to tell through not only the exhibition, but through the whole event, which I think culminates in the idea of like that Paul Robeson and the most honorable Elijah Muhammad were men of the future. And that there is a process by which like new human beings are created, but in turn, I think a new society comes into being, but what kind of society will that be? Like, how will these, What what is the struggle to, I think, really return civilization or the creation of, you know, history back to the people or even the sense of the Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of humanity. And I think that um, this is all just like very much um, yeah, like bringing a sky to, I think, a lot of people that may not have really under, like, believe, like, in this moment, they just, even if people do deep down believe that that is just how create culture is created um, and advanced, but live in a time of stagnancy, um, it can be hard to feel it until you sort of come to, yeah, this, you, you, we had to work very hard to obviously make this event come together, but it also, I think brought a lot to um, everyone's horizons, but it seems like there's also so many people now who, um, you know, are very much excited for the next steps that we may take, including because of this anchoring in the sense of James Baldwin. And so the year of Baldwin will be very crucial. And I haven't even touched upon how incredible it was to really also get this, this whole, get everything that I was sort of saying from, um, all the relationships that we have built, all the different travels. We learned so much from the Nation of Islam. We learned so much from all those different mosque visits. We learned so much from listening to minister, student minister Ishmael speak. Um, I, or like, I haven't gotten to touch upon that, but I do think that before I get too carried away, I wanted to put back that sort of sense of appreciation that we sort of gained all of this insight or all of this instruction from 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 working so closely and getting to know them um 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. I want to add something, which is um, which is what well, well, what Kathy you were saying made me think about that King quote that Doc always quotes, like "Love is the sword that heals." But then I think also that biblical quote that "Perfect love cast casteth out fear." I felt so. I've I as an individual felt more free after that event, and I felt that I had fewer reasons to fear the future. And I had all these reasons to believe in the future. And I knew that I didn't walk alone, you know, just as an individual. And I think that that is something exemplary that we were trying to express and show through our event. Um, that just felt very concrete with this event in particular. But the last thing I wanted to add is I also think that our event, but also what we're doing as free school will be an important anchor point for me going into the historic 2024 presidential election, because I think the election is already revealing itself. Well, I think one thing that the election is already really beginning to show is how intense and how real the ideological struggle is, because you have all of these contenders like RFK, Cornell West um, and Trump, who we've been discussing the past few weeks, who are entering the battlefield from very, very different angles and making alliances that sometimes overlap and a lot of times don't. And you, you know, a lot of it is also happening online, but I think that for me, it has been a lesson in how much ideas and which ideas people choose to take up do determine the future. And, and I think my question for all of the three candidates is, what is your understanding of the American foundation, like American history? What will be your anchorage on which you build an American vision or like a world vision, a vision and a case for the future? Like, you know, who will convince the people, not just convince, but bring something to the people that they can actually believe in because it's so deeply what's needed right now. And I think it was what's free school doing. Like, I think it was what free school is doing and what we were saying in our event that gives me a very, very strong anchorage and like, okay, this is the American tradition that I, I believe in. Like, this is an honest, unflinching assessment of what has happened that I believe in. And that's why I believe that our vision of the American future is sound. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I made that entirely clear, but somehow I just feel that this was also a very important anchor point for then wading into these extreme ide extremely ideologically contentious waters of like the next year, year and a half of this election. Yeah, I just wanted to add, um, I guess with the presidential candidates as well, that's connected to this conversation is this con is the idea of war and peace. Um, how all three are putting this question of war and peace on the center stage. And that's also very much connected to this idea of democracy. Like what are to be relations between countries that don't necessarily will agree on everything, but will agree that peace is a central um, task. And the reason why I also connect it to democracy is because I think through what we've call, come to call the Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of the world and exemplified through the event is also this idea of democracy, 
where what we're challenging, as Kathy was saying, in regards to art and culture is um, a world in which Western art, Western music is seen as the pinnacle or seen as the standard, you know, like whether it's hip hop or rap, like that gets, those are um, exported to throughout the world. And instead what we've shown through this event or actually even to talk about like Western art and that is a generalization, but many of the art today is meant to numb and to um, uh, make people feel just comfortable and just complacent and you just listen to it when you like uh, drink yourself to sleep, all that sort of thing. But instead, like what is what is an art that actually makes people expand like their minds and to really um, grow and transform in the process, like the way that uh, Michelle was describing of Archie and Bobby uh, interacting with the audience and them interacting with each other. And back to this concept of democracy, where do you see um, individuals like, or groups like Bobby and Alfie, along with Cambodians, Koreans, the best of, civil, like, of civilization, so much beauty, to say that the art that's coming from the best of America is on the same level as the best of the civilizational art that comes from Africa, of Asia. And isn't that what we're also saying with you know, politics and international relations as well, which is that there isn't just the supremacy of one group over another. And the reason why I even say this is because I think through our preparations for the art exhibit, um, a section that a couple of us had worked on was on Muhammad Speaks. We looked into all like the archives of the Nation of Islam um, to dig through like what was it that Muhammad Speaks was trying to, like what are the ideas that was trying to um, share with people at the time? Because, and what we had seen, like the central thread was that in trying to discover um, Black America and trying to discover what the Black freedom struggle would look like, it looked towards the world as well. Um, and, you know, Shambarto, Samir, and I last night, we were talking about how, like, it was only in Muhammad Speaks that you could see someone like Tagore uh, found. Um, and that's, um, or even, you know, the fact that Moss Miriam in Chicago, that was a donation or a loan from Muammar Gaddafi of Libya. You know, these who spoke of an African union, but also of democracy on the world stage, where large countries, small countries um, interact with one another and one is not more superior than the other. Um, and I think that's also why like this event is so significant in terms of also thinking about the presidential election because it connects all these threads of society, which is politics and art, art and culture um, and also of human relations, because I know something that I'm trying to, like, I think we're trying to discuss, um, you know, how we assess the event, but much of it also is yet to come. Like, what what will Bobby and Alfie do coming out of this event? You know, it reminds me of Archie Shep's album as well as like the Long March of seeing um, China. And and so so like, what are these connections that we're trying to make where 
you know, we are trying, we are putting forth these ideas, but ultimately people themselves will have to be, will have to move with them. Um, yeah, like Bobby and I think he had reached out as well to say like, who was that person that uh, spoke? Um, and then I guess others have spoken about the Koreans and Cambodians um, because nowhere, really nowhere, because as we were doing outreach and um, talking to people, you don't see an, or, uh, an event like this for the people, like really for the people, something that's free, something that's so beautiful, um, where people are treated well and the ideas have been put, the ideas, we've put so much effort into the ideas as well. Um, and it reminds me of those concerts that Robeson had given, you know, where you see him standing, like singing to uh, these minors. Um, and there's nothing like that in, that we've ever really seen in our times. And I think we are trying to build in that legacy. Can I? Oh, sorry. Well, I just wanted to build on what Alice is saying because I think, I think a lot of the value in like us talking about the festival and like even the events that led up to it is that I think for people who primarily join us via live stream, I think that there is like, I guess there is an impression of what the free school is, which is primarily just like us talking about ideas. And I feel like because many people are not able to join us in person, but we hope that you can join us in person um, in the future, but that there is an aspect to which like the actual practice of what we do here in Philadelphia or in Chicago, I think that that is not um, understood as much or recognized as much. And so for me, a lot of the value is actually, yeah, like even describing what it is that we're doing here in Philly, what it is that like the, the Robeson event was doing in Chicago and that kind of thing, because actually when like during the event, the things that it reminded me the most of and what I felt we were in, not just the tradition of, but actually trying to build on certain, um, yeah, certain traditions was um, the World Festival of Youth and Students, which uh, ran basically from the end of the Second World War up until, I don't know if they still happen, um, but yeah, this was something which was, I think in the Western world viewed as basically like communist propaganda. But actually like when you think about it, it's like, yeah, like this was something that was kind of pushed by the socialist countries, but essentially encompassed the entire world. And there was even one in like North Korea in 1989, I think, where like, yeah, basically like people from all over the world like not just the socialist countries, but also like Australia, even the US, like places like that, they came and you had spaces like these giant festivals where young especially young men and women from around the world who are also representatives not just of their countries but also of the struggles of their countries um where they had a chance to know each other you know and to also not just know each other like on a personal level but also to know each other's art and culture and i think the other thing that our event is in the lineage of is yeah, like the civil rights movement in which what we are, I think part of how I understand what we're trying to do in the free school right now is basically how do you actually build on that tradition of what nonviolence was trying to do, which was not just to, it was yes, to protest against injustice, but also 
as King says when he's talking about Du Bois and Black Reconstruction, where King says, what Du Bois pointed out in the Reconstruction period was the fashioning of a new creative relationship between whites and blacks, between the white worker and the black worker. And this is what we in the free school are trying to do, which is to help facilitate and to forge and be part of the creation of new creative relationships among people, among artists, among ordinary people, among institutions of the people. Um, and I think that this is what is really exciting because, yeah, I feel like this is the part of like what free school does, which you can only really experience if you're here in person. I feel like videos can capture it to some extent, but not totally, just like what it means, as many people have said, like, what does it mean for Koreans and Cambodians to perform right next to each other? What does it, you know, mean for um, Osiris Wildfire, who is a street street musician and a performer of folk art in the tradition of Richie Haven, who I actually hadn't heard of before before this. But um, yeah, like the fact that we put into his sky, like Robeson, and he's like, okay, I'm gonna run with that. I'm gonna play Old Man River, you know. Um, and as many people have mentioned, like the jazz, the jazz, um, the jazz groups that performed. And I think, yeah, this is like, I guess the last point that I wanted to make, but I think this event really, um, yeah, showed to me in a very concrete way. Yeah. What is, what can be the function of art in the sense that when we create these kind of spaces, which don't really exist anywhere else, because like, let's say if you're like trying to find like intercultural or like multicultural performances, like you're going to go to some event which is sponsored by like Comcast or something and is put on by these nonprofits. And, you know, like that is a that is, yeah, like one vision of like multiculturalism. But what we're trying to do is intercivilizational. And what we're trying to do is also to show like it is in art and in the artist that you can have the most direct and it's almost like the most like fast moving and a di dynamic manifestation of the kind of changes that we envision and that we see the potential for. It's like in art that you have like the artist who is able to, yeah, like actively synthesize like, okay, like you guys are talking about this or like I'm seeing this in like, you know, the performers from India for, with, for, with Ramya and like, okay, I'm gonna run with that and do something creative with that. But this is the kind of, yeah, like it's the re creative relationship. It's a dynamic synthesis that I think we are trying to help bring into bring into being um, because ultimately, like, yeah, I've been thinking about this concept of like why we called it an inter-civilizational festival. And I know that this is, I think this is like a free school original, like this whole concept of inter-civilizational unity. But what it makes me think about is one, the fact that to talk about civilization as opposed to like multiculturalism is one, to give people I think it gives people a sense of, I am responsible for a long past and a long heritage, but also to talk about civilization means I am responsible for a future, right? And that what I do has consequence for the future. And the other way that I think about it is the way that Du Bois talks about civilization, where we are moving to a new age of humanity in which civilization more than ever becomes that which is determined by the mass of humanity by the mass of ordinary human beings. And this is essentially, yeah, this is the struggle for democracy, for a new type of democracy, but also basically for a new stage of human history. And like what we are trying to do in Philadelphia is respond to how we feel the world is changing and how the American people themselves are changing and to be part of 
that yeah dynamic and creative synthesis of something new um and yeah like i just i hope that for people who like listen to us on live stream and stuff um but that is i guess kind of conveyed in some way um and yeah i think fine sorry this is the last thing but this was the first time that i saw the documentary that the, the was shown at the chicago event and yeah, I was really, I'm really grateful and appreciative that the Church of the Overcomer was willing to host and to be very gracious and to also provide food for us um, for dinner and everything. And also that, yeah, like when you watch these documentaries um, that the Free Squad started making, because apparently we make documentaries now, it's like, it's not just about like the viewing experience, but also, yeah, like you see the people, like after you watch something like that, like when you see Robeson in the flesh as a human being that he was, like the complete human being that he was you see the people around you differently. There's like a new, like, there's like a new weight or like a new color to the way that like all of us at the Church of the Overcomer, like we're talking to each other and relating to each other. And yeah, I'm just very excited about, you know, like what we're doing in the free school, how we're continuing to move and how we can continue to, yeah, like to experiment and to be creative in fashioning new ways of, you know, like fostering like this creative dynamic relationship that, that King talked about um, and that people like Paul Roberson and the most honorable Elijah Muhammad were also um, like embodying in themselves as like people of the future, like Serafina was saying. Yeah, so we, um, you know, that's so interesting you say that. We actually screened the documentary again at my workplace at the Institute of Racial Justice in Loyola. And the response was like magnificent one woman actually said that if I had seen this as a child, my life would have been different. And I was just really shocked because she said, I knew about the civil rights movement. My family participated in it. I did not know about Paul Robeson. Um, and, but I know that I benefited from him. And um, yeah, it's just, it, it really moved people um, just so profoundly and in ways that I think we don't know. But her also saying, this is for now. His time has now. You know, I think there is a sense and there's a spirit, especially in, in, in just people. People know that his time is now. And I also just wanted to say, based off what everybody was saying, I think it's, it's this question of how America will relate to the world. But I also think it is a very existential question of, you know, East meets West. You know, like that Rudyard Kipling poem, East meets West, never the twain shall meet. But it's really in the... Um, in an event like this, you really see how there's such a natural meeting place and knowing and loving each other. Um, and I also think just in like where so much of the world where East meets West on the terms of domination and, you know, so-called globalization and basically Western values imposed on people. This really is um, such a profound alternative. Um, and not only an alternative, this is the way things are meant to be. This is the, the way that this art uh, is created and flourishes in the first place. And just with Bharatanatyam specifically, I actually grew up learning this uh, art form. And I, the yeah, which was the Indian dance, the dance from India. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel like performing it in the United States, it was always e either in the Indian community or is this exotic thing, you know, in, you know, like a Comcast. I even remember once as a kid, I performed at a Raytheon thing, what? which now I'm just like, what the hell? I mean, I was really young. I was probably 10 years old, but I had no idea. I was just, someone said, oh, do you want to perform Raytheon? 
Raytheon is a, now I know it's a defense company. It's part of the military industrial complex. And just, it was so unnatural. I remember it was in some sterilized white cafeteria and it was just bizarre. Like it just, this, it's just, there's no connection. But then seeing all these young children at this church, the Unitarian church where King heard Gandhi's uh, message from Mordecai Johnson, also seeing these young children taking pictures in front of the foam board with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. <laughs> it was just like, this is, this is, I mean, I'm so glad that I'm part of something that can give this to this children, this real true sense of self. Um, and uh, this is really where this art and culture belongs. And even how Ramya, she was, she's so creative. She's seeing new things. It's just, she even said, this isn't just an old, because I even remember growing up, we just learned the old stories, the old mythological tales. And I have to say, I mean, I learned about it, but it didn't completely make sense to me because I didn't have the context to understand it. But in this renewal, I feel the art form really lives. And even the way that Bobby Zankel was saying he would like to collaborate with Ramya and and also the way Alfie played Yusuf Latif, who's one of my favorites. Um, yeah, it was uh, uh, it was just so profound and moving. And I think we're part of something really, really where, I mean, the resonance of what we're doing is now more than ever, I would say. You wanna say something to that? Yeah, I mean, just like what you're saying, big, like unconquered love, like we came out the gates with that, like, and, uh, that's the center which holds people together. Like that's what inspires, like I'm thinking a lot of things right now, but <laughs> the thing is, I'm gonna keep it to at least three that I wanna say from what Kathy had mentioned, which is that human universal, mm -hmm. like in the Cambodian dance, the program whispered to me, she was like, I see, like, I recognize dance, the movements that the Cambodians were doing in Indian dance or something similar. Like, mm -hmm. and there's something really deep to me about that because of how easy that connection is, how natural mm -hmm. and simple in a mm -hmm. lot of ways mm -hmm. that is. And like the same thing goes with the title, Unconquered Love. It's very simple, to the point, direct and true. And that's the center where we stand. Like we stand upon what truly is um like this human universal links people in a natural way and what Kathy is saying is the fact that we are unnaturally in a time where people are disconnected from each other and are told that they are not alike but actually what actually creates your creative willpower and potential for people is to know that God is inside them, to know that, um, to know Paul Robeson, like you're saying, like that willpower of the people is in and is still real within everybody. But now in this moment, it's suppressed because of the lies that we've been told and because of you know, how confusing things are made to be over history, over King, over Du Bois. We aren't taught what we should have been taught. And that's also part of why the free school is at the center for the ideological struggle, mm -hmm. because we stay on the truth. Like we stay reading Black Reconstruction. We read what we're not 
taught to read. We are supposed to be reading these people mm -hmm. and know these people mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. they in us re uh, like releases us, unleashes mm -hmm. the potential that we can actually become. Mm -hmm. And like, mm -hmm. that's just with everybody and everybody was vibing off of that. And um, like, Almost immediately when I was sitting down, like from the event, like I started going into like this deep dive with everyone in the nation and like looking at people. I don't know what, but it started with Abdul Haq because I was looking at like the Newark mosque and why it was like strong as ever. Like it's a strong mosque and their connection with the other grassroots organizations mm -hmm. and like them involvement with the city. I was like looking that like, well, yes, they know that the to also unleash the potential of the people, not only do they have to be clear on how to do so, like what moral developments do children need, what mm -hmm. relationships mm -hmm. need to be made, but they still have the center of clarity upon what to say, how to act, what tradition they stand upon. Well, you know, Donable Elijah Muhammad. Louis Farrakhan. Um, and what that leads to is the same of what we're being led to. Um, the Afro-Asiatic reconstitution, like to to like, and I just think that what you're saying is true, Magna, like unleashing the potential of the people. You need the truth as the sword that heals to do that. And I started, I found this um presentation. Mm -hmm. um, also concert that Mother Tynetta did mm -hmm. on um, Taha, which was to read specifically what that is, was a symphonic suite um, that happened in 2009. And it was choreographed by with ballet dancers and international guests around the world from Shanghai to like, um, and had like performers and singers with India and so on like that. But Taha is like this new musical composition work based on the 20th Surah or chapter of the Holy Quran. And Ta and Ha represents two mysterious letters, mysterious as they say, letters of the Arabic alphabet, which also serves as numbers and words of a prophetic code, interpreted as meaning, O oh man, listen to thy Lord, listen to the still small voice of God within. And she, this article says that the narrative of the story centers on the spiritual commission of Prophet Moses being called by God in the sacred valley, Tuwa, where he received the divine commandment to, to deliver his people from Pharaoh. He pleads for a divine helper from his family, his brother Aaron, to help bear this tremendous task. Almighty God grants him his request to send them both as two messengers with authority to Pharaoh, pleading for the delivery of his enslaved people, while at the same time <coughs> warning Pharaoh of the divine plagues and calamities, calamities visiting the land due to his mistreatment of God's people. But the ways in which that she did this um, uh, symphonic suite, she had a fully orchestrated musical um, work into a multi-dimensional cultural event, a world concert for peace, an international folk arts festival. Um, 
And the, as the article mentions that some the most prestigious persons in the fields of music and performing arts have become acquainted with Mother Taneda's spiritual vision. This includes artist Yo-Yo Ma, renowned mm -hmm. world cellist and noted artistic director of the Silk mm -hmm. Road Project, the eminent composer and musician, and Jant Sorov from Mongolia, a long song singer, Sarant Tua, noted as a long song singer of the century in Mangola, the opera singer, El Elise Aveda Yabatova from the Altai Republic in Siberia, artistic director and Universal Ballet Company of Korea, Mrs. Julia Moon, daughter-in-law of Reverend and Mrs. Sun Yoon Moon, and the family of Usted Ali Akbar Khan with his two sons, Aish and Pranesh Khan from India and other influential persons that can be acknowledged as supporters from America, the continent of Africa, Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean, the South Pacific Islands, from, Highland, from Hawaii to New Zealand and Australia. And another thing that this article mentions is that like Mother Tarnetta is a self-taught artist without formal training in music theory or instrumentation. And she credits her musical expression to be a gift from Allah and an answer to a prayer. And she was aided um, and supported throughout the years by the late Alice Coltrane, mm -hmm. wife of the legendary jazz artist and genius, John Coltrane. And she also had a friendship cultivated through this um, practice that she was doing. It was Sirietta Wright, who was a former wife of Stevie, Wonder. of Stevie Wonder. Yeah, and I only mentioned this just to say that we are definitely not alone. Um, <laughs> with uh in doing this inner uh civilizational festival mm -hmm. for the people and we're actually also in a tradition like you're saying jeremiah uh alongside those children with um this large because this uh, festival she did was in 2009 mm -hmm. and so like mm -hmm. this vision of this world universal like as one humanity as one um asia africa the southern americas um russia like this vision that paul robeson and the honorable elijah muhammad saw as the like world that was to become already like we're definitely not alone in seeing that and it's definitely the truth of even like King's single garment of destiny, all wrapped up in a single garment of destiny. Like there's these threads that lead to that. So I just was excited and I wanted to share that um, festival. Yeah, um, I've been wanting to talk about God all morning um, <laughs> because I think it's very interesting that the closer we get to these ideas of uh, unity with the world, the more we find ourselves gravitating towards uh, God, you know, the Church of the Overcomer, the Nation of Islam, because I think that um, for one, what this event did is clarify how to, um, for one, I guess, clarify what the Nation of Islam is, but to also clarify like how to believe in God in the 21st century. Um, in this vision for um, a unified people, for a world of peace, 
um, I had felt that the the music and the art um, and all of that was kind of like a retraining um, for everybody who went there uh, to see themselves as a part of a greater uh, whole. So um, I just find it uh, very uh, beautiful, I guess, that um, we keep going towards that and that, um, you know, that, that to me is just like a, a renewal of, um, of, of spirituality. Cause I had remembered, um, Meghna had actually always said that I think that, um, you know, Christianity has its place in like the remaking of the American people. Uh, a couple years ago, she would always say that, I don't know what you talking about. Um, but I kind of see it more and more now that, um, you know, I guess that type of vision. Um, and also like upon seeing all these beautiful uh, ancient cultures, um, ancient civilizations, like how could you want to go to war against that? Uh, and how could you want to destroy all of that? You know, uh, yeah, it's just very, very um, beautiful. So. I also want to say thanks to everybody um, who came out, who put all this together. That must have been crazy. Um, there was so many, <laughs> so many different people uh, and moving parts, and and I just say uh, thank you all. Wait, Nathan, really quickly, I actually really appreciate you saying that. Um, I almost started crying in the first ten seconds of the Cambodian dancers because even though I've seen that dance before, it like kind of hit me really hard that, and I was just telling Michelle this, that like, I can't believe the West wanted to bomb that civilization to the Stone yeah, Age. Yeah. And I remember we had made that point really clearly in the Korea event, but I think with the Cambodian, there's just something so, you know, obviously it's a civilizational basis in peace. And then thinking about, yeah, just the bombings that went on in Southeast Asia, um, it really got me emotional. I was like, I'm gonna have to get it together. We have so many more performances. Oh. I can't fold it now, but yeah. What you're saying? What what y'all are saying is uh, helping me make this strong assertion here. I'm about to make uh, related, I guess, to even the Cambodians. Uh, when, uh, you know, and, and really uh, drawn, I guess, from what Michelle said about the American identity. When wherever your people come from, you come to America, your culture, your values, they're, they're very completely much at odds with American. When I say American, I mean like decadent Western society, uh, completely at odds. And maybe where you came from, like the Cambodians, they tried to uh, exterminate uh, your people. Uh, and and you, you're kind of removed from all that, all that truth. And you come here and uh, whatever you're able to hold on from your culture values, like how does it exist in the society? For some people, I guess, uh, I guess, uh, Magna, you said, and on the weekends, uh, they had you performing for Raytheon, other people at most, maybe they, you know, have some cultural dress on the weekends. Uh, and so what I, what I hope uh, and what I would have liked to make a, a stronger assertion that has become clear to me now that for your culture and your values to have any place in America, it has to be tied and been a part of the black freedom struggle because this is a culture and values that are American that are for struggle that have the capacity to survive and persist and propagate 
uh, in this country where anything positive, anything progressive is under assault. Uh, and really the best of the best of your culture and values, wherever you came from, came out of struggle. Uh, and so for it to truly persist, it has to continually be part of struggle. And in this country is the black freedom struggle that uh, identifies the task of our times and a way to get there. And so, uh, yeah, it, it just uh, is, is the only way forward, man, is the only future I, I see. And uh, I, I hope that uh, I hope that young performers that come and see this and are trying to make sense of their lives and how to relate to this uh, this heritage that their parents have been wise enough to try to carry with them uh, can feel that they can persist uh, in being them themselves in America uh, with something that we have to offer with with uh, with 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 the Black Freedom Struggle. Uh, so, yeah, glad man, glad to be a part of man. Really, truly blessed. Yeah, you know, it's a deep thing. I'm also just thinking as we're uh, discussing. Uh, about uh you know like uh, kathy was saying and other people are saying uh, eddie was saying about how uh the only way for these uh civilizational values and traditions to survive is to be linked with the black freedom struggle and i totally agree because i think that all these uh, traditions were basically they, they they were developed through struggles that's the thing is the people of these different civilizations the masses the peasantry the working class are the ones that really develop these cultures is what we call you know like Robeson said the folk cultures and uh the contradiction of many of the immigrants is that they uh come from usually a middle class or something in their countries that is are already kind of disconnected from the masses and then they come here and then so they're trying to they're stuck in this contradiction of how can i keep these traditions which go back to the masses of your society which you kind of have uh moved away from and then uh but keep it in this society with the onslaught and you know there's all kind of people want to advance uh, like eddie was saying with a white society but they don't want the culture often of white society and the values and so on and so they're stuck kind of paralyzed and then you know i think what magna described is quite common these kind of multicultural things and um but that's the thing the black freedom struggle because it's a culture so rooted in the struggle, the democratic struggle. And so that's a natural place for all these traditions. And that's really the only way they're gonna survive. I mean, I think that's kind of the message is that they're only gonna survive through being linked to struggle and through being connected specifically with the black freedom struggle and serving a greater cause, serving the cause of peace, of democracy. They're not just there for, uh, you know, people's entertainment or things like that, or, you know, people to force on their kids to be like, oh, you have to know this because this is from the old country or whatever. Otherwise, it'll die. Like, look at look at what happened in white America. I mean, most white Americans, they'll know like vaguely, oh, my grandparents came from yeah. Poland or Romania or Germany or whatever. But I don't know one word of that language. I don't know one, anything about that culture. The only time that I'll bring it out is like, oh, with the Ukraine war, all of a sudden I have to become a Ukrainian. <laughs> Somebody who's like six generations ago came from Ukraine is now like an expert on Ukraine and is like, let's go. <laughs> anyway, very opportunist is what I'm saying. Uh, so anyway, so, you know, but we have a we have a different template with the with the black tradition. And um, I was struck by what Michelle was saying also with a Baldwin essay about the the real thing is what kind of people will America produce? That's essentially the 
the barometer of if the American experiment, if freedom has really come to America. And, you know, it, you have to be blown away by seeing the people uh, at our event. I mean, even for me, uh, like a Seraphine, I'm very interested in this uh, Taha some, uh, uh, concert because even seeing the Nation of Islam for me, the people, I mean, the people that have come out of it that are, uh, it some blows me away, synthesizing Islam and the Holy Quran with the black struggle and with uh, inter-civilizational unity. And it's, it's just a... It's an amazing thing that's still uh, in the process of, of developing. And so I think for people just to see it, for all these people, uh, Asians to see it, white people to see it, black people to see each other, everybody to see each other, which the, the event had all these groups present, you know, unitar people, Unitarians, Hindus, Nation of Islam. I mean, you name everybody was there. And so, yeah, that's just a, it's a powerful thing that human, that human element, that human uh you don't know what's developing out of it. It's not just a melting pot. It's something even, even right. deeper. It's a, I don't know. It's yeah. one of those, uh, well, you know, those things, chemistry experiments, where you mix a bunch of stuff together before freedom and democracy, not just, you know, for the sake of multiculturalism. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like Kathy was saying, it's not just, you know, the, what you learn in universities in the Asian American framework is we want the salad bowl, not the melting pot. But yeah, it's just, it's else. so superficial. <laughs> okay, great salad bowl, and you're still bombing these countries. I mean, this is this is so much more. <laughs> this is yeah, way more yeah, um, yeah, deeper, yeah, and yeah, this yeah. the the commonality um, around these values. It, it really is a higher standard. Yeah. Oh, I just wanted to add. I like. I appreciate Jahan that you brought up the Baldwin essay again because I was also thinking a lot about that one line he has where he says the record is the people that the journey have produced, like the journey, the people that the journey has produced. Um, because I kept thinking that during the event, and that's also why I was crying so much, especially when the musicians started playing, because I thought to myself, oh my God, how is it that these musicians have been able to survive all of this and maintain what they have main maintained? But even more than all of that, how are they creating with so much strength and integrity and creativity, what they're giving now? And I think all it takes is that one line from Baldwin to really crystallize everything I felt. Like, you know, the record is the people that the journey have has produced because I just thought to myself like, yeah, there is, there is an American reality and there is an American future. Like, and this is why I'm sure we'll get into it, but this is also why Chris Hedges is so wrong or Norman Finkelstein is so wrong about, yeah, America, America being a wasteland because uh, it, it's too much for me. It's not just the musicians, it's the dancers, it's the attendees, it's the men and the women of the nation. Tell me, like, tell me there is not a new world order emerging. Like, you know what I'm saying? There is, and there is, that's why I really agree with Baldwin when he says that, America has an opportunity like no other nation to move beyond these old world concepts of race, caste, and class into the new world concepts. Like he said that 60 years ago now, and it's um, it's so ripe for this moment. Uh, but, but once again, I just wanted to say, I think seeing so concretely each of these personalities which were produced, each of which were so brave, so beautiful, so unique, extraordinary, so distinctively American, each rooted in their civilization, whether it be Asian or African-American or something else. 
Um, and yet so much a human being of this nation, this moment, and the future that we're moving toward. That really broke me. <laughs> um, yeah, so I just like that you brought it up again, Jahan. You know, um, if I could just say something, you know, um, everybody there saw each other and they saw the world through tears in their eyes. And they were tears of joy, but they saw each other through tears in their eyes. And um, for musicians, especially, uh, let me say, who play in the avant-garde tradition which is the tradition out of which Bobby Zankel and his group come, comes. To have the musicians on the stage weeping and crying. The avant-garde is not generally associated with that type of, uh, of um, emotion. You know, um, and oh, I was just going to recommend that it would be, you know, if we could do something for the musicians where we would show the documentary because um, they were part of all of this, but like most of us, they don't know that much about Paul Robeson and even less perhaps about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. So I think it would be good if we could get, you know, something a potluck and have all of the dancers and musicians attend. But this was truly a heartfelt moment. And it said to me, that if it happened there, mm -hmm. it could be the paradigm of what it would look like if the American people are freed up to know each other, to learn about each other. And it is emancipating. And that's what I learned from many people including Michelle's childhood friend, who I think what I got from it is that she experienced a type of healing of the soul, which she had not experienced, which she yearned for, a healing of the soul. And I, you know, I'm, I'm learning so much about Chinese immigrants and how everything is to be swept under the rug. You know, like, don't worry about that. You'll be okay. Just be successful. But the soul is wounded and the wound of the children is inherited from the parents. And so to be healed in this way is so very important. 
Um, and I know, you know, like, like Nathan said, you know, it makes him want to talk about God, <laughs> uh, to talk about a, a reality that is higher than this, a reality that is all encompassing. And I, I know when uh, Ramia, the great Ramia, oh my God, great. Uh, by the way, you know, the event put art where it should be in the affairs of society and the struggle to uplift humanity. Art as art, not as entertainment. And that's what was so interesting. It was not like we were entertaining people as in a multicultural event, you know, where artists perform and leave, and then, you know, the next act comes on. This was art as the vanguard of humanity. People were not entertained they were elevated. And that's that's what I think, what I get from what Nathan is saying, that it made people think about God. And I think that's what art does. Yeah. It, it compels you to think about, well, you could call it otherworldliness, um, and all of that, I, I don't want to get into that right now. I just, and I'll end on this. Um, when Bobby Zankel called me the next day, we talked for a long time. Really? Yes. And he said he wants to collaborate with Rumia, especially her interpretation of the Maya Angelou poem, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Um, and that has so much metaphorical and allegorical meaning, just the title of that poem. Mm. But to have that interpreted through classical Indian dance, which then in the practice of the dance and of the poem is a way of achieving Afro-Asiatic unity within the framework of the American people's struggle for democracy. <laughs> it, it's just, and of course, you know, when Michelle read uh, John Coltrane's poem. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Uh, in the uh, on the album, A Love Supreme, and as she read, Alfie started playing A Love Supreme. You know, all of this intertwining of civilizations, and that's why. It had to be called an inter-civilizational festival, not an intercultural festival. We are not doing liberal, bourgeois 
of entertainment. We are bringing the politics of civilization and struggle to the forefront. And without going into a lot right now, anyone that thinks the trajectory of the struggle for democracy and freedom in America in the 21st century will look like Europe of the 19th century. They, they are completely off base. It's not going to look like that. The future will look more like what was produced in the third American revolution. That's what it's going to look like. And thus, the creation of a new people is a precondition for the creation of democracy and freedom. Only a new people can achieve this. And it won't be the opposite way. It won't be, quote, the revolution, and then we'll kick the can of creating new people down the, down the road. No, only a new people. That doesn't mean that they will be complete, that, but a people, a new people in becoming mm. can conquer the task of changing this empire, this imperial behemoth into an agent of peace and social progress. And only when the American people see themselves in all of the peoples of the world can this nation be free. Only then. So I, I just said, for those who think that the trajectory or the course of struggle will be an economic struggle mm. or a struggle within the framework of bourgeois electoral politics, uh, they're going to be sorely disappointed. Mm. And I think what we saw with all of the feedback, with all of the interaction, with all of the tears, with all of the passion, with all of the emotion, is this is the way the American people want to achieve their nation and their futures. Mm -hmm. And just to add, because while Michelle was, or after she had read the poem, that was also a poem that she read before, mm -hmm. um, at Paul Robeson House. At the Paul Robeson House, uh, when we also celebrated his life and did a presentation at there, um, she started talking to introduce Afi Pollitt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and actually, she introduced both Bobby and Afi um, in formal ways, in a formal way, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, recognizing who they are. Um, and why they are even important. And um, what you're saying also had me think that, well, yes, both, everybody was ultimately present with what we were um, yeah. doing. Present, yes. um, we, 
And that presence of mind is a difficulty or people arrive to it with difficulty sometimes because it's hard to open your heart to people that you don't know. Mm -hmm. And when she, Michelle, was introducing Bobby and started talking about King, everybody seemed like they arrived, like, we're here. This is where I'm supposed to be. And I was looking, I was sitting, I think I was sitting next to Alice and Emily, but I was looking, I'm like, Michelle looks a lot like Sumi right now. And I was having like a weird moment because you were standing like in front of Sumi and like, so everybody was listening to you. And mind you, like, yes, it's true. Like the energies were very high. Like there's like a very high kind of like vibration that is all connecting. Like it's not like an antagonistic energy. It's not something that weighs a person down or chops a person and keeps them small. But like, there's just like, and when you started saying King, Ruth Naomi Floyd looked at you. She said, go ahead, girl, start preaching. (laughs) I was like, See, because I was looking at Ruth Knight. Uh no, the singer. Oh, oh yes, yes. The yes, singer yes. who the vocalist. Mm-hmm. Um, she with the fro. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute, because I'm looking a lot like her right now because of, I have my hair out. Yeah. She had her hair out. And I was only thinking about our similarities in that moment when you started talking about King. Like when you said that, and she looked at you. And she recognized you, Michelle, as an agent present with this moment and able to face it. Like there was something very, that like it kind of synergized at that moment. Mm -hmm. And she had like a a, a verbal and emotional reaction to Mm -hmm. it. And I saw that emotional reaction that she had and I'm like, oh, she's a real person. Like she's really down, like with us. And not even like with us, but she's not a stranger to me. Like I kind of, because when she, okay, it was funny because when she came up to the stage, I saw her and um, I think I said something, Jeremiah, like, oh, you know, people can act this in a type of way because they don't know you or something. I said something to you along those lines. And I think I was helping her put up her bandstand or whatever and I was like I don't know who she is you know how I distrust people look at people skeptical I don't mean to look at people skeptical I just don't know you like that so but anyway but then she looked at you I was like oh okay so we're on the same page now like we're on the same page um and so the tears definitely were real like Mm -hmm. what what happened was definitely real and another moment of clarity that I had during the event was when um I was asked to introduce Kiana Hunt from the Church of the Overcomer to give a prayer for the mothers and children. Mind you, my words were all over the place. So (laughs) I know I could have had better words in this moment. No, but what was, no, because like, it was kind of a special moment to me because Mm -hmm. the jazz Mm -hmm. musicians were just arriving. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And they were just putting their stuff down. Like I saw like Lee Smith, the bass is like all the way in the corner, but it seemed like everybody was in the building at this moment. Like I was <laughs> like, oh shit, like, sorry. I don't, I didn't write anything. I didn't prepare for this. But um, Ramya had incidentally or accidentally performed prior to her children that yes. she was instructing uh, before the children performed because the children were late because they had accidentally went to the wrong location <laughs> and had to, 
hustled back to the first Unitarian Church at 21st and Chestnut. And so Rania had to give her performance, which was awesome. Yeah. And then the children finally came in and then they all lined up or whatever. And then the last student finally arrived, who was the the one who was late and everybody clapped like, yes, she made it. And then they did their performance. And then I had to uh, introduce Kiana Hunt. But what was interesting about that moment as the jazz musicians came down, I was like, well, I did have to thank Ramya for her creating her own mm-hmm. interpretation. Her, But it was like she was ultimately present with the responsibility that she, in making her um, work of art, mm-hmm. her, her performance, was a contribution in the struggle. And she had to say something. She can't come in with like something like, very low energy or like kind of mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. much thought into it. And so there was that thank you. But then there's also like a, the prayer for mothers and children, like the prayer. And you know how Ramya teaches her children. I don't know if she's mom, but we do know that Kiana is and that in her prayer, like it, there was that relationship that they are not separate from each other. So another thing that I noticed it was when Kiana had to come. Uh, Kiana came with her family also. Yeah. She came with her mother and she came in with her kids who just had like a basketball or like a football mm-hmm. like game or whatever. And she was like, I'm going to be late because of this. Is that okay? I'm like, this is perfect because <laughs> we're running behind anyway. And um, uh, so when they were watching Ramya, the I think the oldest girl she had left. She was like, I don't know what to do. She mm-hmm. had left out, but Kiana and her mother were enjoying Ramya, like dancing with mm-hmm. Ramya. I'm like, I oh, know. Really? yeah, literally, like, <laughs> like moving like her. And I'm like, wow, like that, uh, really, like that. What you're saying that that relationship, that 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 ultimate similarity that they saw in each other, like, was they they were able to love each other. They were able to see that. Saw each other through tears. Yeah. When you see, it's it's such an interesting thing if you think about it, to see the other through tears in your eyes and they see you through tears in their eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, it is not, a, tears don't obscure necessarily. Tears can create a new lens. Yes, yes, yes. And what's so exciting about that is that it directly... <coughs> makes me reflect about who I am and like mm-hmm. what I am because me being in this in this um, not only on that day but like free school um there's like something in the pit of my stomach that's like well I know there's a person in here that should be but isn't you know what I mean like there's no, a person explain that as in like you know how like you could be like an Alice Coltrane, like you, you don't, and this is me thinking or reflecting upon a younger version of myself where I don't know about Alice Coltrane, but I'm born in a time where Alice Coltrane once was like, mm-hmm. she obviously mm-hmm. contributed and changed mm-hmm. the minds of many and inspired many. Mm-hmm. And like that creates a, not only me, but a bunch of young women like me who are like 
um, impassioned by either chakras or like natural stuff or like whatever to learn about themselves or ourselves. Um, but the thing is, is that you need Alice Coltrane to know yourself. You need Paul Robeson to know yourself. Like there's something missing if we don't. Mm -hmm. So there's a something, mm -hmm. there's like a pit in my stomach that's supposed to come out, but it's not fully emerged, it's submerged. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. when I'm reflecting about this new lens that you're talking about and how that ultimately changes people because it actually teaches oneself about themselves, like teaches people about themselves, who they really can be in like, and what you're saying is that a, a complete a complete person, free from Western imperialism mm -hmm. and whiteness, mm -hmm. a complete mm -hmm. person, mm -hmm. that is whom like literally can evolve in and also become um, what Alice Coltrane, Mother Tana, and all these other women, Coretta Scott King, um, uh, Tina Marie, what they became, but more because we have time now to <laughs> learn and advance what they also contributed to the world. Like now in the fact that I know of Alice Coltrane, not only can I fully become that, yeah. but I'm unafraid of the task that lies ahead, yeah. which is to advance, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. And this and is she, the whole thing she about- liter She literally becomes part of you. Right, you know? right, right. Right. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, I didn't no, no, I'm just highlighting what you're saying about mm -hmm. the what what it means when a person is free. Yeah. And what it means yep. to know yourself yep. is to learn like what we're saying, like Du Bois and Paul Robeson to know this new um person whom is already in you, like who already exists but has no meaning or no reason without Paul Robeson or whatever, I'm Du Bois, whatever. I'm like mm -hmm. Michelle's friend, her, her, like who she is, cannot become who is meant to be. That's right. Without um, mm -hmm. Paul Robeson and so on, without the festival, without seeing mm -hmm. that she is, uh, she can become a part of the world that right. is without whiteness, without mm -hmm. like this, this, mm -hmm. that idea that mm -hmm. I. Mm -hmm. I think is becoming in all, or has become in a lot of ways, people in free school already. Um. I just wanted to say something quickly. I don't have very much to add because you guys have basically said it all. I feel exactly like you all feel. Um, <laughs> I know it's a lot of work to put together something this huge and this complicated with so many parts and but i think it's worth every minute of it because of what it then produces and in the week following the event when you know we were all sort of processing what went down what are the implications of this you also see that in the world of politics there's so much movement especially you know with this presidential campaign and whatever and it just made me realize that this was the right moment uh, this was the right moment to make the point that there is one humanity, there is one people, like the entire world is basically tied together at the hip at this point. And you cannot think of peace as something that's 
divisible. There's one piece and everybody's fighting for that. And you see that in, you know, all these leaders that have come up and are forerunners of, you know, the, the race for the presidentship of, of this country right now. Everybody's talking about peace. And the other thing I it it became crystal clear to me in the week following the event is also this thing about human capacity, because what we witnessed on Saturday was nothing short of genius. I mean, the Cambodian dancers, the Koreans, Ramya, I mean, I'm so grateful that we have her and that she is down with free school the way she is. Um, but the jazz and, you know, also Osiris and, you know, Meghna singing a Russian folk song and, you know, something just all of it is just, I can't describe it of in, in any other way, but just genius. And then you have somebody like a Chris Hedges or a Hillary Clinton talk about how people don't have any capacity, you know, they're just, you're, they're basically human beings are whatever, they're backward, they don't have anything. And I mean, an event like that basically exposes the lie and, you know, the hidden agenda be, be, behind taking political positions like that. Because what do you say in the face of so much human genius all together in one room and all Americans, you know, um, and also, what do you say to the fact that, you know, it was America that produced a Robeson, that produced an Elijah Muhammad, that produced a king? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think all of this, there could, it could be, I agree with, I can't remember who said this, but I, I agree that it could be viewed just as a cultural thing, beautiful performances and all of that. But no, I think it's, it's a, you know, it's a furthering of the ideological struggle. Um, and yeah. I just wanted to add that. Yeah, this is just a small addition, but I think also the this aspect of culture really shines such a light on the weakness of the white left and just white civilization in general. So exhausted. I mean, Jahan and I were laughing, like, what does the white left have by way of culture? You know, a Chris Hedges, who's the international, I don't know. And I only like the international really when it's kind of jazzed up by Chinese or you know <laughs> but it's you know it's yeah it's just um it's it's just like culture is such a big part of being human and whiteness just erases it and commodifies it and we really said that this has no place in the new world order um this will be a world order for culture just want to add that hey man i'm really <laughs> digging this conversation and i really want i really appreciate what everybody has said today uh, i really resonate with everybody's emotions and feelings and i feel like we have really made a contribution a contribution that at this point in time was really important and i think it will it will be realized in the future in the same way that today we we see, uh, we, we think about King listening to Mordecai Johnson and think about the implications of that throughout the years. I feel like in the future, somebody will be looking back and seeing the free school doing this in the Unitarian Church and feeling like that was also a contribution. And, and you know, this performance, the success of this performance was really made possible, uh, I feel, in two ways one is obviously the organizers and the performers who came together 
and organize this in such a way, like starting with the African drumming, ushering in the beginning and ending with jazz and with everything in the middle with the NOI and the music and the dances and, and, and the singing, all of that in that order made a, made a lot of sense and a lot of thought must have gone into the ideological positioning of each of that. And, you know, I was talking to uh, Bobby after his, uh, after his performance and I told him that, you know, this is, this is probably the first time I've listened to avant-garde jazz in, uh, like in person. And I think it really raised my consciousness. And he said, that's, what, that's exactly what we try to do. We don't just come here to perform. We come here to raise people's consciousness because we come out of the struggle and we are here to we are here to say that struggle is what produced us and that's what we're trying to send a message about and i think the second part the second part that made this event possible was everybody who came out everybody who came out the community who came out and and was part of the audience but they were as much a part of the performance as anybody else. Um, and, you know, like a lot of appreciation to, to everybody. Um, and I was really thinking that, you know, these little children who performed, um, they're probably first gen or second gen Indians, Cambodians, North Koreans, Bangladesh, not North, North Koreans, Koreans and Bangladeshis. Therefore, so their, their identity is both American and they're tied to their own culture. And here they are performing at a historic church, performing at an event celebrating Paul Robeson and the most honorable Elijah Muhammad. And if you can't see that, that connection, then it's it's difficult but i think that's that's what i'm talking about when i say that we've made a contribution we've brought all of this we've we've taken a zoom out view of all of these connections and these connections are always there these connections are was always there will always be there and really appreciated you know eddie's uh, uh, um, presentation so much, so much. It resonated with me deeply where he said that, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from. You're all part of the struggle. You're all part, you're all part of the black struggle, the, this world struggle for peace and dignity and democracy. Um, he's really touched by everything. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to add to what Shantan is saying, but that, yeah, I feel like when we, like, when we talk about this idea or vision of an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of the world, I feel like some people's reaction may be like, oh, but then what is the place of, like, white people in that world? What is the place of ordinary people in that world? But actually, the way that I have thought about it and i think i may have said this before in a past free school but 
what was the civil rights movement if not an Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of America, right? And when we talk about this Afro-Asiatic thing, it is not something that is alien to the American people. It is actually flesh and flesh and bone of the bone of the American people and who they are today and what they're moving towards. And so I just, I just wanted to make that point because, yeah, I feel like I think this event helped me also see that more concretely, that this is something that we're trying to build on what was basically a breakthrough during the civil rights period, like a breakthrough in terms of like the, the ways that people can struggle for freedom, but also the basic conception of what America is, who the American people are, like all this was a breakthrough. And we're trying to also in some ways in our own time to yeah, foster that kind of breakthrough um, that is necessary. And yeah, like as Shantanu was saying, like it's like we made a contribution towards that. And I just wanted to say like as like one part of that, like I feel, I think I've felt this in past free school events, but I've never felt prouder to be <laughs> of Korean descent than when the Korean dancers and drummers for past events too, like when they have performed for our free school events, because, you know, the if people remember the, like the fan dance thing, there's a, there's a moment when they like flick, they flick the, the fans, right? And I grew up, I grew up in my Korean church seeing that fan dance performed a lot. And it's mostly just like something cool, I guess, that like, that the girls, like young women at church can do. Um, but there's there's just a new quality to it, seeing it performed at free school events where it's like when they do that thing, it's like you have everyone like cheering for them and it, you can tell how much it, it's like it compels the young women who are performing it to do it even better, to be sharper, to be more fluid, to be, to have, to bring a different energy to it. And that's, yeah, that's why I feel like when we, I feel like a lot of people, when we reflect on these free school events, we're like, nowhere else can you get this kind of thing. It's not just the fact that you're bringing together these different civilizations and peoples and artistic forms, but the quality of it is a kind of quality that you can't find anywhere else. And the last thing I'll say is, yeah, I really liked um, what Doc and Serafina were talking about in terms of what does it mean to see each other through a new lens? Because, yeah, like the beautiful thing about our festival is that we bring together different kinds of people, but all of whom show, especially when they're either performing or meeting each other or speaking, they show some side to what this new man and new woman, this men and women of the future can look like. The jazz performers, like the avant-garde jazz, but also the people from the Nation of Islam, they are all part of the same fabric of a new kind of human being, right? And that's the beautiful thing about it. It's like, it doesn't have to look like one thing. It'll look like many different kinds of things, but we're all part of the same fabric, you know? And yeah, like what the Nation of Islam has been able to achieve in terms of raising people from the darkest pits of basically like America and to raise them into these like exemplary human beings, like no matter where you, like from the leadership all the way down um, in the Nation of Islam, it's like that kind of human being. It's like that knowledge has to be shared with like basically the rest of the American people and like the thing that I yeah like I think for me too like um I only started to actually like see what jazz was really about 
after coming to free school events and seeing like Alfie play, I think for the first time. Um, but there's like, there's this something so funny, but also just so like incredible about seeing like, for instance, like the, the Bobby's ankle um, and the wonderful sound group. It's like these people who are like the, mo the nicest, also the most mild mannered and like genuinely just kind human beings. But and maybe, I don't know, that's just my impression of them. But when they play, like they play like demons and not in like a bad way, but like they are able to channel something which is so like not just profound, but also it's like electric. It's like the way that I, I think I described it was like when I listen to Bobby and his group play, it's like you're listening to like an entire city, like a city that is like basically like, like all these different voices, they pop up, they scatter like and like it's like you can't really process all of it, but still like you're absorbing all of it, you know? And um, and yeah, it's just, it's just like, that's, I feel like that's what we mean when we say like the new human being, like the men and women of the future. It's not gonna be, I feel like, what either the ruling class or the left are able to conceive of, but it's gonna be something that is so different and so um, also varied, I think, and so beautiful in its variation that, yeah, like, I don't know. It's just, I'm very, honored and grateful that we can um that we can cultivate this and try to help foster the creation of this um so yeah also i'm gonna read some comments and maybe we can if people don't have more to say we can go to the discussion of the election and stuff um but yeah we had initially a lot of people saying good morning uh jacob danny um neha emil yvonne Nuri says good morning from Albuquerque. Um, Lorenzo Woodson says me and your dad Stephen. I'm not sure whose dad that is, but um, me and your dad Stephen are watching together. Crystal, Michelle's friend, says good morning from LA. Um, Christopher Romero says good morning, everyone. Um, and then, yeah, Neha had a comment on Facebook saying, thank you to all the organizers and artists for the beautiful celebration and the concert. The exhibition on the Afro-Asiatic reconstitution of the world was really enlightening. It was beautiful to see all the photos of Robeson, the most honorable Elijah Muhammad, and the, new, and the clippings from the Muhammad Speaks, and to see how Black America was at the forefront of human consciousness against this struggle against imperialism and colonialism, and for self-determination and freedom. Uh, there's more to her comment. Wait, let me check. Uh, I'm not able to see it because of... Oh yeah, okay, so the inner civilizational concert was a reflection of the future which we envision, a world based in peace, where people from different civilizations see a reflection of themselves and others and learn from each other's history and come together to build a future. It also concretely laid out what a true America or American people represent, people who are rooted in the values of darker humanity and see worth in each other and want to come together to create something new and in the process transform themselves too. Um, and then Jake has a few comments saying, I like what Kathy's saying about the profundity of the event. And in some ways we're just beginning what we're about to do. Um, and then I like that the free school is pushing things to a further stage in human development. I've always admired how doc and how communists seem somehow to be ahead, to be living in the future now. Um, and it's like the idea of living in the idea, it's like living in the idea of the dictatorship of labor and furthermore, really, the dictatorship of the whole people, which is classlessness, the rule of the whole people, 
by the whole people is moral governance. Um, when I first came to free school, it was like my life had finally unfroze and I could and I could be myself around people who'd still love me. That is, if I made a mistake or did something great, they would still love me. So I appreciate you all in the conference. In many ways, allowing me to be myself um, and I'll always be down with y'all. Um, and then Todd Doherty says that meeting Nuri in person in Albuquerque was a real treat in the concrete. Um, and he adds free school worldwide. <laughs> um, Michelle shared the uh, link to the Baldwin creative process essay on Facebook. Um, and then uh, Midwestern Marks is commenting and this may have been in response to either maybe uh, Porba or Serafina saying incredibly well said and based. Um, BK says, genetically speaking, a white person, a quote unquote white person is Afro-Asiatic already. 65% Asian, 35% African, according to someone named Luigi, Luigi Luca Cavalli Savorsa. Um, uh, oh, Emil adds uh, Lorenzo, um, but it's Lorenzo and then uh, Emil's dad. Um, Midwestern Marks adds, there's lots of crossover between Midwestern Marks and the free school audience love to see it. Um, yeah, and then yeah, Jake has some more comments about what the event meant to him and what it means to him. Um, being raised around white people and black people, absorbing a lot from both, both sides of the American people. Um, and Philip Logan also says good morning. Um, and yeah, yeah, I think that that is the majority of the comments. Um, but yeah, Doc, did you want to talk about the 2024 election stuff? Or um, I think we I think we can transition to yeah, that. Yeah, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, this is a topic that we had broached a couple of weeks ago, uh, especially uh, commenting upon. Cornell West uh, introducing himself as a candidate for president uh, in the 2024 elections. At that time, he had announced as a candidate of the, uh, well, now I understand it as an MPP, Movement for People's Party. Uh, since then, he has shifted towards the Green Party uh, and we said, uh, in effect, that you could not look at his candidacy separate from the candidacies of Donald Trump and RFK, that the three of them constituted, uh, in political terms, a tri triad of opposition, uh, and that for Cornell to make sense of himself and his candidacy, he would have to see the connectedness of what he is doing with these other movements. Uh, and in fact, he would have to acknowledge, which he has not yet done, that the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. candidacy is igniting a movement as the Donald Trump presidency and now candidacy of 2024 is igniting a movement. Uh, and for Cornel West to be successful, 
he has to understand what he is doing as part of a movement, uh, a political movement of the discontented. And I think this is very important that the discontented are now launching movements all over this country, but movements that are political. Uh, anyone who wants to demean or trivialize the political essence of these movements of the discontented uh, do it uh, not in order to clarify the path forward in struggle, but to obscure it. Now, you know, without going into a lot of things, I think we can um, go right to the point of trying to uh, deconstruct and understand uh, several of Cornell West's uh, supporters. Uh, I think, um, well, let me just say before I get to them, uh, that Cornell West cannot see this run for presidency in the same way and taking on the same form as his uh, lectures, public lectures, and public speeches. He has entered into a new arena, an arena of struggle, an arena of where contesting class and ideological forces are colliding. This is qualitatively different than giving a lecture at a university or in a public space. It is qualitatively different. Once you throw your hat into the ring uh, of the political struggle, even in its electoral form, at this time, you are entering in to an intense struggle, unlike anything that has occurred in the history of this country. Cornell has not yet fully absorbed that. Cornell has been involved in electoral politics at the national and presidential level for some time, going back to his support in the, Dem in the Democratic primary of uh, uh, Bill Bradley, who was a senator from New Jersey, uh, and his run for presidency, I think in the early 90s, and then going forward to his um, well-publicized support for Bernie Sanders, uh, and I think Ralph Nader in an earlier time, uh, uh, and then his um, uh, voting variously for Green Party candidates and for Democratic Party candidates, including in the 2020 election for Joe Biden. Uh, so he knows something about electoral politics 
at least as his throwing support to various candidates, either in the Democratic Party or in the Green Party. But I don't think he has completely processed the difference between supporting a candidate and being a candidate. And secondly, being a candidate at this moment of deep political crisis. Uh, and this is going to require a steep learning curve on Cornell's part. Uh, and he is going to have to learn on the job. Uh, some of the things he's going to have to learn is that uh, uh, general phrases and even sloganizing uh, is not what people are looking for in candidates at this time. Uh, for example, uh, the claim that, let us say, uh, Vladimir Putin is a gangster. Uh, well, you know, besides the fact that you have no evidence of that, and it's more of a smear job uh, that gives aid and comfort to the American war makers, uh, it turns a lot of Americans off. A lot of Americans. Uh, and it clarified nothing. Or to claim that Russia is an empire. Uh, those kind of general um, phrases and concepts uh, are not what will cut mustard in this crisis. Uh, I understand Cornell's being wed to the Palestinian struggle, and there's no problem with that. Uh, but to set it up as a litmus test, for example, for RFK Jr., uh, he does not have my position on the Palestinians, so that uh, cancels or disqualifies him as a progressive candidate, irrespective of his position on peace uh, with Russia and with China and with Iran and with Cuba. Uh, not to mention the fact that in the throes of this ideological political struggle, who is to say that RFK's position on the two-state solution or one-state solution to, to resolve the Palestinian question, which is also an Israeli question, what is to say his position won't change, won't develop? Uh, or the claim that Cornell makes that Xi Jinping is an authoritarian dictator and that China is an empire. Uh, these are general slogans, general phrases. Uh, Russia is an empire, but no military bases outside of Russia. China is an empire, but the last time I looked, 
they had one military facility outside of China. And to say then that the war in Ukraine is a matter of two empires colliding, not a matter of US militarism and the attempt to bring down the Russian government or to force it to surrender to Western interests and what, what the consequences of that are. You know, I mean, uh, you just can't continue that way, especially when Trump and RFK have specific proposals uh, and so on. The other thing is both RFK and Trump have attacked the security state, in particular the intelligence services and the FBI, CIA, and national intelligence and the other networks uh, and institutions in this architecture which has reduced civil rights and civil liberties and democracy in this country to a, a hollow claim. In other words, given the overarching power of the deep state, of the security state, how can you call this a democracy? Uh, and so on. RFK and Trump have attacked this in the name of democracy, freedom of speech, civil liberties, and so on. Cornell has not. Now, that does not nullify the potentiality of his candidacy. He must grow. He must evolve. He must become more sophisticated. And part of that growth will be listening to the people. Uh, if you were to ask me, I would say at this point, just listening to Cornell's rhetoric, he is behind the people, especially that 50, maybe more percent of the American people who say that the ruling elite should not be allowed to continue to govern and rule the American people. And that's what they are saying. I think part of the problem also are some of Cornell West's advisors. In particular, you know, recently listening to uh, an interview with Chris Hedges, um, who is a nihilist and a cynic, who proceeds from the concept of the idea that we are all doomed the people do not have the capacity to reverse the trajectory of American imperialism and the authoritarian forces that rule this country. Um, he sees Cornel West's campaign as an effort to announce to the people that you all have failed, that there is no hope, and just get ready 
for the hell and the doom that awaits you. Well, I don't know too many people who want to hear that. Uh, the other thing is that Chris Hedges represents a type of American intellectual who come, comes out of the uh, establishment. As you know, um, uh, Chris Hedges was a journalist for the New York Times for over 20 years, reporting from the Middle East and South America, and I think even Europe, um, especially during the Kosovo Wars and the bombing of Yugoslavia by the United States. Um, when he became a, quote, leftist is uh, not clear if he is even a leftist, but, you know, but he leaves the New York Times uh, for reasons I'm not yet clear about. And he becomes this public intellectual. He writes books and uh, speaks. But as far as I can see, there is no history of involvement or commitment to any movement for social or political change in the country, including the civil rights and black freedom movements. I don't know what his relationship was to the anti-Vietnam War movement. I don't know uh, what he did before the 2000s when he appears as a public intellectual. But whatever that was, the conclusions that he has drawn are so out of step with what is possible and what the American people are looking for politically and ideologically, that to have him be a major advisor to Cornell West, to me suggests that Cornell West's uh, presidential uh, project is doomed to failure and disappointment, especially for Cornell West. Uh, he is still not the Green Party candidate, they have a nominating process, and we won't know that he is that until the, um, the summer of 2024. So he's speaking as an aspirant to, the, um, uh, uh, to be nominated or the nomination of the Green Party. He still doesn't have that. Now, given uh, the instability an uncertainty of the Green Party and Cornell West's relationship to it and a whole number of other things, there is no guarantee that Cornell will continue to be the candidate even going into 2024. We have no guarantee of that. Um, and then with people like Chris Hedges, uh, advising him and giving him uh, political and ideological uh, uh, framing of his project, uh, he might encounter uh, opposition that is so uh, great that he might just withdraw. And I see that as a possibility. Uh, and then, of course, I was reading 
a, uh, a short essay by Norman Finkelstein, where Finkelstein is addressing the question of will Cornell West be a spoiler? In other words, will Cornell West throw the election to Trump? Which is another way of asking in, in Finkelstein and in Hedges' uh, thinking, will Cornell West assist a quote, neo-fascist, i.e. Trump, in winning the election. And so everything, according to Finkelstein and Hedges, must be done. Well, Hedges believes that we can't stop fascism, what he calls fascism, uh, that is Trump. So we're just, you know, like he says, I fight not because I think I will win, I fight because I must. Uh, it sounds good, but, you know, uh, where was all your fight all this time? But that's another question. Uh, but for Finkelstein, the question becomes, well, let us say, and he's, think, he's uh, giving hypotheticals, that Cornell, running as a Green Party's candidate, will get, well, will, leading up to the election, have 20% of the electorate voting for him. Now, I don't think that, I mean, that's a wild speculative claim. If Cornell can get 2% of the voting, population voting, that will be a tremendous achievement. But so, but Finkelstein says, let's say it's 20%. And that Biden is losing, and the presumption is Biden will be the candidate, and that Biden is losing let us say a month out from the election in 2024. What should Cornell West do? Well, Finkelstein says that Cornell West should go to Biden's people and say that here are my demands for me to th throw my support to you. Uh, and these are non-negotiable. And these demands are uh, for Medicare for all, doubling the minimum wage, uh, and investment in infrastructure. And then uh, Finkelstein says, well, uh, Biden being desperate will say, yes, I will go along with all of those things. But then after the election, Biden will not fulfill any of it. Uh, and then Cornell West should call upon the people to take to the streets, as was the case, and this is Finkelstein, as was the case in the civil rights movement. Well, it's, the whole thing is wild speculation. Uh, Cornell West has never called anybody into the street, and there's no evidence that his merely saying that we should take to the streets will eventuate in people doing just that. Uh, but what, what um, Finkelstein is saying, and this is the key thing, and this is what, you know, let us say Cornell, can, you know, runs up until the election. What, and, and has, let's say, 1% or 2% of the vote, according to polls. What they're saying, and this includes hedges is that really Cornell's presidential bid is 
to force push Biden to the left or the Democrats to the left. And after that has been achieved in a close election, he will drop out and support Biden, which will be something similar to what Bernie Sanders would do. That's a Bernie Sanders move. Run until you can't, until it's obvious they're not gonna let you win, and then support the people who rigged the system against you and are the greatest warmongers uh, and anti-working class forces that we've seen, and so you go to them, betraying all of those people who supported you and voted for you. The alternative for Cornell, and I don't know that he is emotionally or intellectually or politically able to make this move, to see himself as part of the people. That great coalition of the discontented, that over 50% of the American people, most of whom thus far vote for Trump. So the question for Cornell, and it is a moral, political, ideological question, are they fascist? Or do they represent a populist movement of discontent? Let us take RFK. The same kind of populism and discontent. Do you see your candidacy as one with his? Is there a common fabric, a common purpose? Then the final question, I guess, is this question of fascism. Either you use it accurately or you need to take it out of your vocabulary. You can't keep going around here calling everybody you don't like a neo-fascist. You know what I'm saying? Without any understanding of, well, what the hell are you talking about? Are you talking about 1920s Italy, where the word fascism comes from? Or are you talking about the Nazi party in Germany? And if you're talking about either of them, they were movements to seize power. You know what I'm saying? The most right-wing authoritarian warlike forces in American society already have achieved power. And according to Robert F. Kennedy, and he's accurate here, the great coup against democracy, the coup d'etat against democracy, took place in the 1960s the, with the assassinations of the Kennedys, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and others. He considers that accurately a coup d'etat of the deep state against democracy. The other iterations of this were moments in the consolidation of the authoritarian wing of the ruling class. And it has been consolidated 
with the complicity of both the Democratic and Republican parties. And that's, that is the political history of the United States from the 1960s up till today. Donald Trump is not leading a fascist movement. The fascist already, if you want to use the word fascist, I think this is something way bigger and, and um, more dangerous than the Nazis in Germany or the fascists in Italy. Power was already taken. Democracy has already been compromised. If you look, if you point the finger to Trump, you're obscuring who the actual anti-Democrats are. Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, just to name a few in the Democratic Party, have always served the interest of this deep authoritarian state. Not Trump, who is attacking them. Not RFK, who is attacking them. The stakes are high. If you enter into the struggle at this time, Cornell, it must be mature, it must be well thought out, you must see alliances. Now, Chris Hedges talking about, well, I'm, he's running as a Green Party, but we're going to have an, a united front. A united front of who? Socialist alternative? Uh, the Revolutionary Communist Party and a couple of other uh, unknown sectarian groups? Oh, you call that a united front? Or are you going to go to the people? People whose views you might not always agree with, whose lives, the way they live, you don't know about. You don't know nothing about rural uh, Pennsylvania. You don't know anything about Kensington in Philadelphia. So I'm just saying, I, I think, uh, and I'll, I'll just end on this, that the crisis demands more of all of us and certainly of Cornell West than he, up to this point, shows a capacity uh, to, to rise to. Can he do it? And does the language that he has used over all of these years meet the ideological challenges of this time? I'll stop here. Yeah, there's a lot in what you said. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to, I think, pick up on a few things, particularly the the Chris Hedges interview, but then also, I think, bring in, yeah, the Robert F. Kennedy peace speech that he made in New Hampshire recently, because I think that they are, I, I haven't seen as much as what's happening with Trump recently, but I feel like, yeah, the Chris Hedges interview and then the, the RFK speech are kind of paradigmatic in some ways. Um, and 
Yeah, I think there was a while in which I was kind of attracted to Chris Hedges. I feel like when I was, I don't know, I guess becoming politically aware and stuff. And part of it was uh, fascination with the fact that he was like a, a seeming Presbyterian minister and like my family's Presbyterian. So it was kind of interesting that I guess he does come from that background. But that being said, I feel like myself personally, we in the free school, but also the more profound and important thing is that the American people have moved past the point in which all they're going to hear is someone like Chris Hedges being like doom and gloom nonstop 100% of the time, having no other basic valence or tone or angle other than like we're all screwed and like the best we can do is like rage, rage against the dying of the light or whatever, like one last desperate thing, you know? Um, and yeah, just the way he talks, it's just so like over dramatic and just so dark and grim. And I think that he is, I think represents, but also, yeah, is one of those people who has profoundly miscalculated where the American people are at and what they're moving towards. And instead you can only see this as in the way that, Cor that Cornell also talks about is like the catastrophe. We're living in a period of catastrophe. And actually like, no, we're living through a period of crisis, but also a period in which there is the beginnings and already having taken shape like actual movements like what rfk said like we need a new movement of a new peace movement i call on all americans to join in a peace movement that will even go beyond myself in my run for presidency but the great need today is for the american people to join in the new peace movement and yeah like i think it will be a disservice to cornell west if he continues to have that pessimistic attitude, which is also basically unscientific attitude, like an unscientific worldview, like a non actually like, because the thing is, is that they parade like someone like Chris Hedges, he kind of masquerades and being like, oh, I'm the one who's being real. I'm the one who's being a realist about like what actually is happening in America. But actually you've missed the entire scope of it. You missed all of the essence of it, of where America's moving. And you're the one who's actually more out of touch with where the American, American people are at um, than someone like RFK or even Trump. And yeah, I think that the other thing is, yeah, Hedges makes a series of claims in that interview, which is with Brianna Joy Gray on the Bad Faith podcast, um, where the first of which is, yeah, he makes a claim that basically the Kennedy brothers were not all that and that actually they were just elites who were either like, uh, manipulating or that they secretly hated King and that actually they weren't really doing anything all that great. And so, yeah, actually I saw there was a good, a good thread from Aaron Good who interviewed you doc that one time, but he had, cause he's done, I think he wrote a book actually that talks about the deep state and its attacks on, on the Kennedys. Um, but he had a good series, I think tweets like kind of this disproving that. Um, but also, yeah, the other claims that he's making in terms of, yeah, just like he does this thing where he says like, oh, I don't actually believe America was like ever all that great. And like, I'm not going to succumb to like the myth that America was founded on like a revolutionary tradition or something. And he sounds like he's being radical, but actually like, congratulations, all you've done is parrot like the 1619 <laughs> line, you know, which is <laughs> coming from, yeah, the New York Times. And I guess that, that makes sense because he comes from the New York Times. Um, but yeah, just the way that, like the, the last thing I guess that I was thinking about the Chris Hedges interview is 
Yeah, he uses. It's not just like the. It's like the, like the the presentation of himself as like someone who knows a lot and is very well versed and is like I don't know anyone who knows history better than Cornell West does, and, but he uses this kind of like air of like knowing a lot of stuff, but it's all to basically, it's kind of like a, a bait and switch where he uses that but to basically advance a, a kind of politics which is really cynical and which is also not even that really rooted in reality either. And yeah, you see it come through when he talks about RFK Jr. And um, yeah, just like the way that he like so casually dismisses, it's not just RFK, but also what RFK Jr. represents and the actual message that RFK Jr. is able to bring to the American people. And you can say the same thing about Trump um, in the sense that, yeah, like everyone like that Chris Hedges and all these people, they operate with this notion that what Trump is going to do is to basically install like a fascist regime in the United States. And they point to, yeah, they're like, have been, I think reports about what Trump wants to do if he wins again, which is to basically clear house in the massive bureaucracy of the, the federal state, uh, the federal government. And you point to that as evidence that Trump is a fascist, but like Trump was already in office for four years and we didn't see like whatever kind of fascism that you're speaking of. But also, like, just the fact that Trump and also RFK Jr., that they, like, want to clear house and attack the corruption within the federal agencies, like, that is not fascism, you know? But you're using basically this, like, specter of, like, fascism in order to justify, like, your own politics, which is, yeah, as Doc was saying, like, basically trying to force concessions from, like, Joe Biden and the Democrats and from the actual existing ruling class, which is the most fascistic, like fascistic in terms of actually how it exercises power. Um, and yeah, sorry, that, that was, I guess, my main thoughts on it. But yeah, I really, I really liked the, um, the RFK Jr. speech on peace, just because I think others have said this too, but um, it's so clear that he sees himself in the tradition of not just his father and his uncle, but also Martin Luther King. And you can dismiss him either as being totally disingenuine or you can actually see that, no, there's something, there is something there. And the fascinating thing is that, like, this is actually, it's interesting because it's true about RFK and Trump, which is that they have very clearly, they have obviously ties to like elite circles in American life, right? Um, and the fascinating thing is not that they are tied with those elite circles, but that they've had to make a break against those elite circles, like whether it's RFK Jr. with his ties to like Hollywood, obviously the Kennedy thing and the Democratic Party, but like his wife, like RFK's wife is like a well-known actress in Hollywood. And he talks about like what it meant for him to basically like then like realize like one that he'd been propagandized during like the whole Russiagate thing, but then also to make a stand for it and to actually go against basically like all of the forces which are pushing you to basically conform to like the Democratic Party line. Um, and you can make the same argument about Trump, which is that, yeah, obviously he proudly will say like, I'm a capitalist and at least he's honest about it, but that doesn't actually like just saying whether you're a capitalist or anti-capitalist or not is not really like the defining question. And actually it is more indicative of, you know, like actually Trump has had to actually make choices and to withstand lots of attacks from the deep state and from the ruling class. 
And if you can't see that by now, like either you don't want to, yeah, basically you don't want to see it. And yeah, I saw there was a comment from someone saying like, oh yeah, Trump's movement is, yeah, basically capitalist and all of that stuff. And I think the thing that people are missing, and this is the last thing I'll say, is that the people, the thing that I think people miss is that when you actually look at people who are self-describe themselves as part of the Trump movement, you know, what is the greatest thing that Trump did and has done and continues to do, which is to advance the consciousness of the people who see themselves in Trump and who see in Trump someone who can basically avenge them against the ruling class. What Trump has done has only increased the consciousness of the people who believe in him or who have believed in him. And like that is something that is so invaluable. And that's part of what we see with us emerging coalition and political movement of the discontented. Um, and yeah, I feel like that part of it, which is actually like, what are the people, what do the people see and how are the people moving? How is their consciousness changing when it's reflected through these respect, like these three respective candidates? Um, I think that's like the more important question, which like, if you can't see that, then basically you should either get out of the way or you will be cast aside by the people. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to say that I was personally very impressed by RFK's New Hampshire speech on peace and uh, diplomacy. And I highly recommend that everyone should listen to it. And the, the Chris Hedges uh, interview with Brianna Joy Grave was basically in response to that particular speech. So they, they definitely go together. And um, uh, like some of the main takeaways I have in, from that speech, just in terms of giving people an overview who may not have seen it. Um, I mean, firstly, the fact I was very impressed by how uh, Jeremiah was saying RFK basically spoke in this Kenyan way of tying violence at home to violence abroad to violence at home. Just to read a short excerpt, he said, is it any wonder that as America has waged violence throughout the world, violence has overtaken us in our own nation? It has not come as an invasion. It has come from within. Our bombs, our drones, our armies are incapable of stopping the gun violence in our streets and schools or the domestic violence in our homes. I see the same link as here as my father and that Martin Luther King saw about the Vietnam War. They saw that war. They believed that we could not have warfare abroad without bringing that violence home to our streets, to our attitudes, to our communities. Foreign violence is inseparable from domestic violence. Both are aspects of a basic orientation and a basic set of priorities. Um, and then he went on basically to uh, tie that to uh, the demonization, what's happening with the uh, people, the American elite are painting as villains, specifically Chinese, Iranians, but especially Russians. And he cited how JFK basically had to go around the deep state and directly talk to Khrushchev. And uh, actually, he revealed some interesting stuff about how they had to do it secretly and cryptically because JFK was very aware of the CIA surrounding him. And uh, they were able to negotiate the first nuclear uh, test ban treaty where at least the countries would control their nuclear stockpiles and not increase them. And he cited how JFK, I believe, in one of the speeches related to that, told the American people that we have to recognize the sacrifice of Russians in World War II, that 23 plus million Russians were killed fighting 
uh, uh, Hitler and actual fascism and that they their military uh, policies are not because they're crazy, but it's because of their history, their own humanity. And basically, RK was stressing this point that we have to humanize uh, Russia and Russian people and we cannot go on this insane uh, demonization. And I think Doc had mentioned earlier that he ended the speech basically by citing, again, citing an excellent speech that JFK gave shortly before his assassination on the need for peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union and saying that, that this is a call for new RFK Jr. saying this is a call for the building of a new peace movement, um, which I was very impressed by. He said, and here's the most important thing of all, I call on every American to join in the new peace movement, to make your voices heard, to reject the insanity of escalation, and to celebrate no longer the wartime president but a president who keeps peace, keeps the peace. And to what kind of peace do I refer? I'll end with one more piece of wisdom from my uncle. What kind of peace do we seek? Not a pox Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I'm talking about a genuine peace, the kind of peace takes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables people and nations to grow and to hope and to build a better life for their children. Not merely a peace for our time, but a peace for all time. And that's from JFK's speech at, I believe it was American University shortly before his assassination. Um, and uh, so, I mean, for me, uh, one takeaway definitely is that RFK, he's, he's seeing this as a movement. I mean, literally saying we need to build a new peace movement. He's not seeing it in a narrow way, just his electoral campaign. Secondly, uh, what uh, Michelle was talking about earlier about uh, you know the Baldwin essay, and we've been talking about the need for a new American people. I definitely see RFK thinking along those lines. I mean, not that he's exactly where we are, but I see that he's realizing there has to be a greater reconstitution, rethinking of America. I mean, and so bringing it to Chris Hedges, I mean, particularly specifically from that speech, Chris Hedges criticized RFK for talking about the founding fathers, and so. What RFK said, I mean, he talked about America was started as a project for democracy. And he talked about uh, the founding fathers, citing James Madison, were completely against there being a permanent standing army and against getting involved in foreign entanglements, and which is factually 100% true historically. And I, I mean, that's an important point to educate the American people about is that even though our elites tell us about the American Revolution and the Constitution and everything, that this was very important for the founding, but they didn't believe in foreign entanglements. They didn't believe actually, they wouldn't recognize a deep state um, as it were. And then similarly, as Jeremiah raised, uh, Hedges said that, uh, you know, uh, Kennedy's promoting this naive idea about his uncle and his father, and they were actually racist and they were actually just elites. And I mean, he, Hedges kind of, you know, he acknowledged, okay, yeah, they, 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 they got on the wrong side of the deep state, but at the same time, they weren't all that, blah, blah. But, you know, when you, when you uh, compare it to how, for example, Du Bois talked about Lincoln in the Civil War, I mean, recognize Lincoln, very flawed men, white men, in some ways emerging from a white supremacist background, but how the events of the Civil War, the events of the general strike, how that shaped him, pushed him into being someone different, evolving. Similarly, I think you can make a similar argument about JFK and RFK. I mean, now personally, I'm interested much more in going back and trying to understand uh, who they actually were and what, how actually they were impacted by seeing King and the civil rights movement, by seeing the threat of nuclear war, you know, 
uh, all of that. And similarly, the stuff that uh, Jeremiah said with Aaron Good, I think is very important. But then even more fundamentally, uh, Hedges talked about, I think what he said was, uh, you know, RFK believes in this naive goodness of the American people. And I've been around in war zones and El Salvador and Gaza and Iraq. And I, none of those people believe in the goodness of the American people. And so I very much felt that what Hedges was doing was, like, as Jeremiah said, parroting the 1619 uh, project. And I could see the influence of, on the one hand, a socialist alternative Trotskyism. On the other hand, uh, he talked about he's been in touch with the Jammu Baraka, this whole neo-cultural nationalism, settler, colonial, which is ironic because Chris Hedges, I mean, I, I appreciated the fact that he supported the Rage Against the War Machine, although I wasn't very impressed by his speech there. But the fact that he supported it, I don't think any of us were very impressed by his speech there, but he supported it, which I thought was good. But then he's lining up with the people who are completely against it, who are, who are in opposition to it. And I agree that's going to hurt uh, Cornell's campaign badly. So, so yeah, I mean, and uh, he tied it with this thing of fascism. It's still, it's just completely wrong analysis to say Biden is a milquetoast liberal and Trump is the fascist. And he ha he actually compared Biden to the, aristocrats of Weimar Germany when Hitler was rising, they were too weak to stop him, which first of all is a completely incorrect understanding of the rise of Hitler himself. I mean, it was the literally the Weimar aristocrats that brought Hitler into power. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that that's how that unfolded. And uh, similar with Finkelstein, when he's citing Trotsky and saying, oh, Trotsky, uh, understanding of the rise of Hitler, similar thing. You see how this rooted in completely wrong understanding of history, wrong assumptions about how fascism rises, and uh, so on. So uh, I'll just stop there. But yeah, I, I think that this shows Hedges and sadly Cornell West, Finkelstein, uh, they're, they're all mis they're fundamentally misunderstanding the, the role of fascism, how it relates to the people versus uh, the deep state. And that's create paralyzing them to see the reality of a RFK or Trump. And I really don't understand. It seems like Hedges, and I didn't listen to Cornell West's interviews this week, but I read some of the headline descriptions. They seem like they're all focusing their, their ammunition on RFK. I don't really understand. I mean, it's so early. The election, you're not even head to head with him at this point. What's the point of uh, focusing so much attention on criticizing him? You should all be focusing on, on, on Biden as number one threat, third of nuclear, you know, the war president, that should be the, that should be the full strategic focus, but yeah. Yeah. One thing I wanted to add that's related to, to this is that, um, Cornell has said that part of the reason why he's running for president is to unravel the American empire. Like he has said this and how can you actually be serious about that? If all your, both your strategists and I guess you yourself, your whole goal is to force concessions from Biden. And those concessions don't even include ending the war in Ukraine and ending the provocations against China. Like, how is it that, yeah, you're so concerned about unraveling the American empire? Also, I don't know, like, there's haziness about what he means by the American empire, because sometimes he, uh, you can also infer that he's talking about the continental United States itself as an empire. Um, or I, I pick up the, some of those vibes, but yeah, like if you are actually that serious about yeah attacking the American empire, then why not make that the foremost issue that even if you were to try to force concessions from any of the leading like presidential candidates, like why can't that be like the main demand that you force on them? 
Um, but yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, um, you know, since they claim to be, they claim to know history. You know, one of the uh, facts of history is that great crises uh, often lead to great social transformation. Um, you know, a crisis is not this existential notion of catastrophe. A crisis is anchored to a system of politics, economics, society, culture, and so on. Great crises engulf the people. To resolve great crises, requires the agency and action of the people. Now take Chris Hedges, you know, this is why I was saying to Michelle, we're talking on the phone, you know, these people don't come off as that impressive to me intellectually. Logically, I mean, just to think and speak logically, you say this is a great catastrophe, okay, I will use the word crisis in the way that I think you're using the word catastrophe. But it's not the same, obviously. It's not the same. Because for them, the concept catastrophe means there is no resolution. A catastrophe is an engulfing of society in a in an irreversible decline. And that's the way they think about it. Crises, uh, as has been used by revolutionaries and critical thinkers throughout time, is created by a system and can be resolved by human beings. But then the human beings of the United States are crap, according to Hedges. And I would say to a certain extent, Finkelstein, they can find an excuse for Bernie Sanders by blaming the weakness of the people. You know what I'm saying? Uh, not to mention, you know, uh, Bernie's running in a Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is controlled by, you know, if Cornell wants to talk about neo-fascist thugs, by neo-fascist thugs using his language. And they will fight uh, with everything they have to prevent an outsider becoming the candidate of their party, as they did with Bernie. And Bernie twice surrendered to them against the wishes of most of the people that voted for him and supported him. Which says, I mean, there are implications to all of this. Their connections to Bernie, they're seeing Cornell West as a kind of last ditch Bernie uh, operation. But what are they saying? 
They're saying that the people cannot resolve this crisis and the best that we can hope for is a Democratic Party winning the presidency and continuing with some modifications along the path that we've already been on. There are logical inconsistencies, I think. Is it a crisis? Is it a resolvable crisis? If it is not a resolvable crisis, then get out of the way. The people will be left to their own devices to find a way out of the crisis. Most people believe that there is a resolution to this crisis. They know that this is a political crisis of the extreme magnitude. They know, the people know this. You don't have to educate, you need to be educated. And if that is so, the people their leadership, with their organization, I'm not just talking about people running for president here, can find a way to resolve this crisis. Um, the other thing is the position of these people, and this is why, you know, Norman Finkelstein always quoting Trotsky on fascism and, and blaming the communists and the social democrats for the rise of Hitler. Uh, look, man, I mean, there's a lot, like J Johansson, there's a lot to be unrav un unraveled with that. It's not accurate. It is, no one holds that position except Trotsky, who it is believed at some point entered into negotiations with the Nazi government concerning their war or their proposed war with the Soviet Union. Trotsky did not oppose the war against the Soviet Union. Trotskyists did not oppose the war against the Soviet Union because they felt in their minds that two birds could be killed with one stone, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. And hence, in their theory of permanent revolution, a Re, um, a setting, a reset of the revolutionary process without what they call, quote, Stalinism. I mean, so the same kind of cynicism, and that's what Trotskyists represent. That's what Trotsky represents, a cynicism, permanent revolution as permanent war. Um, Etc. Etc. So the war question is never, never the primary question for them, um, and and so it is. You sense why does RFK prioritize war and peace, and they don't? Why don't you in this time? Why don't you? And it's not because, I mean, it doesn't take rocket science, so you don't have to be the smartest person out there to understand war and peace and the danger of war. There are tens of millions of Americans who will vote in this election on the question of war and peace. 
millions of Americans, more than any other election in American history. Americans will vote against war if given the opportunity. But Cornell and, and his uh, followers, or at least his allies, don't see it as important. Mm. It's almost a Trotskyist formulation of competing imperialisms. For Trotsky, com competing authoritarianisms. Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, pretty much the same in Trotsky's view. You know, Hannah Arendt will take that position after the Cold War. You see what I'm saying? So, I mean, you know, I, to me, it's, um, it's breathtaking in its arrogance and cynicism in a time where there are possibilities and the American people are like the world's people will be a part of the resolution of this crisis of imperialism and of American empire. I, I definitely agree with the influence of Trotskyism on his formulation of the competing empires. Because I actually, I was just looking at Socialist Alternatives article about Cornell West presidential run, and they explicitly talk about, oh, he's taking a principal position because he's recognizing Russia as an empire and the U.S. as an empire, Ukraine. And similarly, in China, we have to worry about the Chinese empire versus the U.S. empire in Taiwan. Uh, so say socialist alternative says that. Yeah, I was just reading their article, but uh, so I'm not surprised about that. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. This is going to be a big, huge weakness. I mean, that I think you had said it completely right when you said he's behind the people. His campaign, Cornell West, not just the person, but the campaign, which includes Chris Hedges and all these forces, are behind where the American people are. Like the way they're. Like the way Chris Hedges is talking is pretty much the same as I've heard him talking since like 2015 or 14. But in the past roughly 10 years, there's been such a huge shift in the consciousness of ordinary people and pretty much a majority of the people. And so you can't stick to this old tired stuff of, you know, fight because we have to and competing empires and et cetera. You need to, it's no longer a catastrophe. It is a, resolvable crisis. Yeah, Danny adds with um, some comments, but he says, yeah, this is Danny Jacobs saying that Finkelstein's strategy is the same old pressure tactics that have been done not even since Bernie, but perhaps for the last 50 years at least. And this has been naturalized in the fact that Obama said he needed a quote movement to pass legislation, for example, the Employee Free Choice Act, which was unceremoniously dropped after the election. And so there's a confusion of politics versus policies by the progressives. Poli policies are the quote unquote what that get achieved every election. For example, Bernie 
that the, that the 2020 DNC platform was the most progressive in history. But politics, on the other hand, is the how and the who, or quote unquote, the who and the whom, how it is done, who does it, why, with what end, and in what matter, and in what mode. Is politics technocratically achieved, or is it through mass self-governance? Cornell may not see himself as part of the same movement, as, they, as part of the same moment as Trump and RFK Jr. But do, do RFK Jr. and Trump see themselves related to each other? Trump is open to vac vaccine skepticism and himself said that he was willing to accept democratic socialists like former Bernie supporters. Um, yeah, and then Jake says, yeah, he can see Chris Hedges now rocking back and forth like the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Um, but yeah, that's the interesting thing is the, uh, like the, even the policy, the progressive policies that Finkelstein lists that Cornell could demand of Biden. It's like, why do you assume that you can even make those demands more easily with Biden compared with Trump? It's like things like raising the minimum wage or investing in public infrastructure. Like those aren't things that you would, that even like Trump would be opposed to. And it's only this like flawed, this wrong view of fascism, which prevents you from actually seeing that you could have the possibility of making an alliance with the Trump, like Trump himself or with the people who support Trump. And yeah, I feel like that is one of the distinguishing factors where um, when people, when interviewers have asked RFK Jr. about how he differs from Trump, the thing that he says is I differ in style from Trump. But actually, I agree with Trump on a lot of things, especially foreign policy. And he, that's, he has a very specific framing around, phrasing around it where he says, I, yeah, like our style of politics is very different. And I agree with that. Like RFK Jr. has, I think he's tried to distinguish himself by like actually trying to invoke like the Kennedy, the Kingian tradition of like, we want to heal the nation. We want to heal the divide amongst the American people. But we want to call forth the best of the American people to as yeah like I think the quote that Jahan read where like RK Jr. says yeah like this is a this is a crisis that has been man-made and that means that human beings can resolve it mm -hmm. like all the problems of America are man-made problems which means that human beings can resolve them and that is exactly what King would say but that's also I feel like what we have said so much in the free school too that every human problem has a human solution and you can differ in terms of what you actually think the solutions are or how, or how they'll be achieved but you have to actually insist on that basic philosophical uh, and political assessment of the American people as Doc was saying that they can resolve this because yeah, like, yeah, it's like someone like Cornell is saying like, we want to end the American empire. How will you be able to do that if you don't actually believe in the American people's capacity to do that? Like you're going to end the American empire without the American people. Like, is that ultimately the formulation that you're going to make? Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm really interested to see where things go, but I think it's not even that that Cornell West and like Chris Hedges are behind the American people. I also feel like when you like when you actually listen to them, like, and if you also leave behind basically these categories of like left and right, capitalist versus anti-capitalist, all of that stuff, when you actually listen to them in terms of the potential of where the American people are moving and the greatest uh, forces and the greatest yeah possibilities. Like, I actually feel like when I listen to them, I feel like Trump and RFK Jr. are also ahead of Cornell, which is very ironic because you would think that Cornell West would be the most progressive, like the most ahead. But actually on these fundamental questions of like how you estimate 
the American people and actually what you think they're capable of, it's interestingly Trump and RFK Jr. who are ahead of Cornell West and I guess the people who surround Cornell West. Um, I don't know if somebody's mentioned this before, but it's really interesting that RFK Jr. is is running on the Kennedy and Kingian concepts. Where, and um, when I was listening to Chris Hedges in that interview, he actually says that, uh, oh, JFK and Bobby Kennedy hated King. And he, he's, he's, he's trying to attack that relationship that uh, Kennedy and King had. And by extension, he's trying to break um, you know, RFK Jr.'s fundamental, you know, the fundamental place that he's coming from, that he's drawing upon this tradition of King and Kennedy. And I think, you know, this also, this ultimately comes back to his cynical view of the American people and just everybody in general. I think that, I don't know, and, and in that interview, I didn't feel like he said anything that raised people up. It was always trying to tear down. He's trying to tear down every everything around him without giving you an alternative. And yeah, I, I think it was it was really interesting the way he very flippantly said, "Oh, JFK and Bobby Kennedy hated King," whereas when in fact that you know king was an anti-war person and i think they're trying to make out like uh, twitter is i guess now a buzz with a lot of um a lot of stories about jfk and bobby kennedy not being anti-war but actually being pro-war makes me want to ask a question. I'm sorry this was covered before. I'm just sort of catching up because it is so much to wrap my head around for this 2024 race. But I was just asking Michelle this, which is that like, um, I didn't realize just how far Chris, the Chris Hedges interview went on this, but I would be curious to hear if other people got the impression listening to what, he, what Chris Hedges was saying, which is basically that I think that when, when we see RFK, Junior and we think about, you know, we've had this um, formulation for some time, which is that like the moment today, people like Trump, but people like RK for sure, like represent like, you know, all the strides that like they came, they come out of King's moment. So is it that like actually the way that, uh, and we've been trying to chart that or understand it's, you know, potentiality, but also it's historical like lineage um, but also, is it that, that almost like today, like in, in Chris Hedges' mind, they, they see that same connection and it actually provokes more ire out of them or like that's the point that they miss? Or is that what they feel like, like they also see this connection, but they don't either understand it well enough or it gets lost to some kind of misunderstanding or maybe purposeful diversion, but trying to break up the King Kennedy connection, basically. Like, is there, is, are they seeing the same thing as we are, but instead it provokes this whole other reaction to it, but are we, so are we like, that's, that's sure. just 
And it's, it is a question, I, I, Kathy, I'm sorry I had to go downstairs so I knocked on my door, but no, that is the, a fundamental question. And that goes for the whole 1619 project. They proceed from a revisionist notion of history. In other words, what we call the third American revolution was not what we were to quote told it was or not what we believed it was because to believe that it was that uh which is which is not the ruling class's interpretation but the actual people involved in that struggle uh said it was and what its potential was they, because they do not believe the American people have any capacity. So it's like they, they start with an assumption. The American people have been white supremacist or either oppressed by white supremacists for three, 400 years. They have never been capable of achieving very much of anything. That Martin Luther King was a weak liberal. That Bernie Sanders, this is Finkelstein, introduces or reintroduces class politics a la the 1930s into American politics, which we are to believe constitutes a more radical uh, move than the Black Freedom Movement. Hence, in a, quote, left interpretation, Bernie Sanders supersedes Martin Luther King. Therefore, when you know, that's why Chris Hedges, he finds nothing, I guess I'm using, interesting or significant about RFKs invoking King. The bombs dropped overseas, explode in the ghettos of America. Uh, military spending and war, uh, is leads to the chickens of violence coming home to roost in the United States. Oh, none of that means nothing. It does not resonate with uh, uh, a, um, a Chris Hedges because for him and to a certain extent for Cornell to be left means, see that's why they can't build a united front of coalition. It means to be in quote, and this is, a form of Trotskyism, permanent opposition. I mean, even if there's nothing to oppose, you're gonna find something in somebody to oppose. If, if RFK is for peace, oh, I got to, you know, since I'm a revolutionary and a leftist, I gotta be in permanent opposition to anybody connected to the bourgeoisie. But it's, it's, it's hypocritical because the standard of critique they're using against Robert F. Kennedy in the struggle for, they don't use towards Bernie Sanders. Even Norman Finkelstein, they'll talk about how Bernie 
uh, reconciled himself to the Democratic Party. And he'll find all reasons for that. We didn't agree, but yet he had to do what he had to do. But one thing they never address is the question of Bernie and the so-called progressives, AOC, the squad, and all of that, voting for all of this funding for the war in Ukraine. By any measure, the regime in Ukraine is a neo-fascist, not even neo, it's a fascist regime. So that's what it is. They, I cannot, to me, it, I cannot explain to you what is in effect the utter contempt for the civil rights movement because they, and, and this is hard, they gonna tell you all kind of ways because they say, I love Cornell West. Yeah, you love Cornell West, but you don't love black folk. You don't love what black people produced. You don't love that black people created a movement that transformed and the resonance of is still transforming this American people. So they don't like black people. And, and you know, it. I'll shut my mouth. You know, it doesn't take a lot to see that, and I think, um, Michelle, you said this to me, that um, Chris Hedges can't abandon whiteness. He's holding on to it. Robert F. Kennedy is more prepared to make the tradition, the transition that America will be the white last white nation. Robert Kennedy is more capable of that than is Chris Hedges. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, well, yeah, because you and I were talking about this a little bit. When I watched last night the interview of um, uh, yeah, Hedges and who? Hedges yeah, and yeah, yeah, someone like that. Yeah. Um, I think I had a similar visceral. It reminded me of Norman Finkelstein's interview with, and in, on which he was speaking with Angela Davis, and how visceral of a reaction I had to that. And um, yeah, I, I just agree with you. I like. I think there's a reason that RFK's message is actually so unnerving to Chris Hedges in particular, and I think it's because it's serving as a mirror for something that he's unwilling to break yeah. with, mm -hmm. or it's serving as a mirror for a position that he is unwilling to assume. And I think it's easier for him to kind of be a henchman. <laughs> That's what I was telling Doc to Cornell West, because I don't know how much he really sees, Corn like he and Cornell is sharing this destiny of like, we are American brothers together. Like, you know, we have a responsibility to this future, but yeah, just the way that he talked about RFK, I don't, I think there was something, there was a psychological edge to it. It's more than just making like an objective critique of a particular thinker. I feel that he was trying to pin RFK for a particular reason. And I do think it has to do with how, yeah, RFK is basically willing to make a break with the white tradition in a way that I think Chris Hedges is too cowardly to face. Yeah, because I feel like. Oh, sorry. 
Well, I feel like people like like Chris Hedges, when they do invoke King and the civil rights movement, they trivialize it because it's also a reflection that their own politics and their own conception of struggle of their own conception of struggle is also trivial. Like it's so narrowly and superficially and like, yeah, just trivially, yeah, trivially, trivially conceived because I think, yeah, like it takes some psychological adjustment, I think. But yeah, one thing that I've really come away with from free school and immersing ourselves in the study of, yeah, like the second American revolution, the third American revolution and where we are now is... Yeah, like what what the Black Freedom Movement was able to do was, yeah, like so profound and also so unexpected, I think, in the context of the day that, yeah, like I feel like when you're growing up in America, you don't really fully realize it. But yeah, like, can you imagine what it meant for ordinary people, like working people, like ordinary Black people in particular to say, the ruling class has basically for the past like hundred years dictated to all of us how we how whites and blacks ought to relate to each other. And what we are going to do is to make it the domain of ordinary people to decide this is how we will relate to each other. We're going to make a break with what the ruling class has dictated to the rest of our people for, yeah, basically the past hundred years going back to the, the defeat of reconstruction and it's on so many levels it's like the civil rights movement basically ended helped to end an imperialist war it also proposed a vision of america which is not an imperialist nation it proposed a, like an america which is like an actual nation built on genuine peace like actual positive peace like king would say and to take all of that and then the way that chris hedges does to be like the civil rights movement was significant because people protested in the streets against injustice. Like it's basically, yeah, that's like how, I don't know, you would learn about it in like your fourth grade U S history class or something. Like it's such a narrow conception, but also that is their only conception of what the political struggle is. It's like, like I remember Chris Hedges, I think applauded like extinction rebellion, which was like this like climate change, like kind of radical group, which would do like, uh, civil disobedience and they like chain themselves to roads and stuff and yeah like that's all you can be is yeah like what you said like permanent opposition like a gadfly and that's the only like the only way that you can conceive of struggle is from a fundamentally pessimistic point of view which is like all we can do is basically either like essentially like annoy the ruling class into making <laughs> and to try to like like provoke them to get them to do what we want but you actually don't think that the the fundamental question of can the people rule can ordinary people rule in the new way? Like, can they actually succeed in this? Like this promise of what America can be, like, is that actually possible? Like you either don't want to face the question or yeah, you have answered it with, with no. Um, and yeah, like I agree with Michelle that like in some ways RFK Jr. reflects back to someone like Chris Hedges, like those things that he has basically not been able to accept about what are the capacities of ordinary people. Um, but yeah, there's some, there's some interesting comments where there's a, there's a discussion between Todd and, um, why not learn on YouTube where this person is saying, you claim that Trump has made a break 
from elite circles. So does that mean that he will not be supported again by right-wing billionaires like Robert Mercer this time around? Then Todd responds and says, you're focusing on the individual that is Trump and not the movement or the motion that is Trump. And then why not when responds? So I guess I shouldn't be focusing on the fact that Trump was supported by right-wing billionaires. Also, what about his tax policy and the deregulation of industries that tremendously had that had tremendously bad impacts? And then Emil adds on Facebook, um, permanent opposition seems to stem from a static formal logic. And ironically, when applied to the real moment, it puts both Cornell and Chris Hedges in opposition to the real opposition of the anti-deep state coalition, which is developing. And this, um, and so the permanent opposition people like Chris Hedges and Cornell become advocates for the status quo. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, if I could just say something about um, uh, Trump's uh, support from right-wing billionaires, or maybe we should just say billionaires because we don't know how right-wing they are. Uh, I mean, because I think uh, most of, you know, the Democratic Party is made up of the wealthiest people that have ever constituted a party in human history. Uh, in fact, uh, its working class base, which goes back to the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt, has almost completely abandoned the Democratic Party. Uh, so it can only win by brain, quote, brainwashing or propagandizing working people and lower middle class people and confusing them and creating fears of a fascist takeover and all of that type of thing. So if we want to look at the ruling class, which is more than a right wing billionaire, I think we should get this clear. We're talking about a class that rules and all of the ruling class or most of the ruling class are not billionaires. Uh, and being a billionaire does not make you a part of the ruling class. We are talking about the, um, uh, how would we say, a class organization that has seized state power. In fact, what makes one a billionaire has more to do with one's relationship to the state and its institutions of repression than it does uh, uh, whether than it is determined by whether or not you have a billion dollars. Does that make sense? You yeah. can be a billionaire and not be in the ruling class. What decides your relation, your being in in the ruling class, is your relationship to the institutions of state power. Now, uh, so, you know, don't keep going back. Now, tax policy, wrong tax policy, trickle down economics in the first Trump presidency. They had all kind of reasons to do it. But that was not the central question and is not the central question. What is the central question is what was his relationship to the Trans-Pacific Partnership? A, de a further deindustrialization of a treaty, more jobs leaving the country. What was his relationship to NAFTA, which was brought to us by the Democratic Party 
fully supported, uh, or the Democratic Party was fully supported by the AFL-CIO, even though they said they were not in favor of NAFTA. The other question, and these are the fundamental questions, and many of these issues will be decided in the course of struggle. No one is looking for a messiah in Donald Trump or Robert Kennedy or Cornell West. At least, I don't think we are in the free school. We are looking for that strategic break in the power of the state, which says that its policies of repression, of the restrictions of democracy and speech, speech is essential for democracy. Speech is a, uh, a signifier of the possibility and right to organize, to uh, advance speech and ideas. You attack organization, et cetera, et cetera, you're attacking speech. Now, which takes us back to McCarthyism, the attack upon the Communist Party, and all advocates of peace. Well, hold it. Was that just a decade or two? Or is there, was that institutionalized? Let us talk about, and I'm talking too much, but let us talk about the crime and anti-terrorism bill of 1994, which ended up with one third of young black men in jail or in some way under the control of the criminal justice system, impoverishing the black community because they're not part marriageable or other forms of partnership where people could build together, could raise children together. All the young men are in jail, socially disabled. Oh, that wasn't fascism because it's black people, right? Last time I looked, that was Joe Biden and the Clinton administration. So, I would say to the person that raises that, we're not no got, gotcha thing here. You know, you can drop your little thing and say what you, no, 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 we're not doing that hometown. We're trying to understand the process of the undoing Cornell West of the American empire. We're not waiting for you to become president because we'll be waiting for the next 200 years. The American empire will be undone in the course of the people's struggle against the current ruling class, the neocon, neoliberal, deep state ruling class. And just to be clear about it, I haven't heard, you know, uh, since we nitpick and people want to nitpick, one thing I heard Trump said, if I'm elected a second time, we're coming out of NATO. Oh, that, that's not significant, is it? I mean, that don't mean that much to, to you all. See, the point of permanent opposition means you don't want to build united fronts and coalition. Real, real politics on the ground, give and take, ideas being exchanged, you know what I'm saying? 
compromise on some things, give and take. We want to further develop what is objectively a coalition of the discontented. Is that not obvious? And that a big part of the discontented see Trump as their candidate in 2024. Is that a problem for you? Does that make them a fascist? Well, I think if that's the way we do politics, I think such people should remain on the margins and embrace your uh, sectarian uh, theories. That ain't the way it's done here. The paradigm looks more like what Martin Luther King and the Black Freedom Movement developed and how that will be implemented and applied to this, the greatest crisis in the his political crisis in the history of the United States. Yeah, I think um, there is one last comment from Philip Logan saying, you're just pointing out the, the attempted coup by the Wagner group in Russia. But yeah, I think even like even on this economic stuff, like, yeah, like I understand, like, yeah, Trump himself was like, yeah, I'm a capitalist. Also, RFK Jr. has been like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a free market capitalist. And the thing is, is that also, yeah, you can disagree with that stuff, but also people miss the point, which is that what figures like RFK and Trump and hopefully even Cornell, although I guess we'll see with Cornell, but what they're able to do is to make it possible for ordinary people to actually be the ones who can, one, debate with each other and to actually talk with each other and to ultimately come to like actual decisions or actual like conclusions about well, yeah, what should be the fundamental future of the country. And from our perspective, it is a question of war and peace, which creates the democratic space for large groups of people, people who are very different, ideologically diverse, to come together and actually be like, okay, no, we disagree with the ruling class. We don't want to be dragged into nuclear war with Russia or China. And this should be a question that is resolved by the American people and not by this fraudulent and illegitimate ruling elite. And once you're able to actually put that on the table for people to actually see like, oh no, this is our problem to solve, then yes, it'll create a space for people to be like, okay, yeah, like what should be our tax policy? Like what should be, like how should we create like new conditions for the reindustrialization of America? Like all of that stuff. And it's not, and it's not even like, yeah, like we have many critiques of Trump. Like we have critiques of everybody. Like we don't, I don't agree with RFK Jr. on like the Israel-Palestine stuff. But the fundamental question is, is like, do these figures help to manifest and to create and are themselves interested in yeah, creating actually like that space for the people to assume their democratic rights, to assume like their, their democratic potential as well. Um, and it is in that actual struggle for democracy in which, yeah, all these questions of like the economy of trade, like taxes, like I think that that stuff will like can be decided. But if, in, if we're just limited to this thing of like, oh, like, yeah, nitpicking and like 
oh, I didn't like Trump's thing on this, then yeah, like that's fine. But that means that you just may not be interested in like the larger significance and what someone like Trump is able to actually bring to the table, which is, yeah, like to help put on the table for all of these ordinary American citizens who have been robbed and who have been dismissed and who have been basically abused by this ruling class to actually put it on the table for them to decide like, oh yeah, like these are questions that we need to figure out independent of this ruling class, which we don't trust and which we basically hate. And I think that that is something that is so fundamentally like invaluable that, yeah, like I, I like, we want to be part of that actual discussion. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Did people have more comments, I guess? Cause we're getting a little bit passed off. <laughs> Okay, I guess not. Um, yeah, thank you to everybody who commented and joined us on the live stream. And thanks to everybody in free school for being part of the discussion today. And yeah, we'll see you for the next round. But yeah, goodbye, everybody. <laughs>